It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight, to begin our observance of Women's History Month, our focus is on what, 125 years ago, they called The New Woman. We'll hear the NBC University Theater's production of the Henrik Ibsen classic, Hedda Gabler. One of Matt Dillon's exes asserting her independence on Gunsmoke, the trial of the 17th century feminist Anne Hutchinson, reenacted on You Are There, and a self-described housewife becoming an activist in the Jessica Tandy Hume Cronin comedy The Marriage, plus Dragnet and Rex Harrison as the urbane detective Rex Saunders. So, settle in. Forget about the cares of last week, ignore any worries about the week to come, and exercise your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. Last week, we were introduced to an admirable woman who'd been a great stage star of the 1920s in a case called The Cronin Matter. Tonight, we're going to hear the concluding episodes of the adventure from December 8th and 9th, 1955, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Hello, Sheriff. I can't hear you for the storm. We were cut off before. Hello? Is that you, Sheriff? I said... Hello? You get cut off again, Mr. Dollar? Not this time, Shorty. Somebody cut the wire. The phone's dead. Then we got no way of getting white out. No way of getting help. No, not at the moment. And he's out there in the dark somewhere. He's got a gun and there's no telling what he may try and do. Shorty, get away from that window. Well, we know where he is now and what he intends... Because he just made a try at it. What are you going to do about him? Only thing I can do, Shorty, go get him before he gets me. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Special Investigator Johnny Dollar at the Cronin Estate, Wells Falls, New York, to the Home Office, Surety Mutual and Trust Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Cronin matter. Protection of a half-million-dollar necklace. Expense account continued. Item 10, $135. One tweed sport jacket to be purchased on my return. Both lapels and one shoulder ripped by a bullet. Also one pair of slacks to match. Destroyed a few minutes later in the mud, slush, and underbrush in the grounds of the Cronin place while pursuing a suspect who'd already tried twice to kill me and who made a third go at it when I stepped out of the side door of the house. Shorty, away from the door, quick. Whew, boy, that was close. Yeah, he can see the door opening, but he can't see us, not in this mess. He's desperate, he's shooting blind. Look, Shorty, why don't you go on back in the house? There's no reason for you taking chances like this. You're taking them? With me, it's a job of work. I get paid for it. I told you earlier how I felt about Dolly, I mean. 
I don't know what Jason Prell's game is, Mr. Dollar, but if it's against her, then I'm against him. I'm staying. All right, it's up to you. Thanks for giving me the gun back. Emergency, that's all. You've got a prison record, Shorty. You know what it means if you're caught with a gun. Yeah, I know, I know. Hey, good. I figured Prell would give himself away if he kept that up. I got him spotted now. Where? At the base of that tall pine, a little to the left. Watch for it, the next flash of lightning. There, yeah, yeah, now I see it. I know the one you mean. Then stay here and keep him pinned down. It's a good spot. You've got cover from the wall of the terrace there. What are you going to do? Circle around and come up beside him. Just throw a shot at the base of that pine tree now and then. Keep him tied down. Keep him busy, you got it? Right. And good luck! I left the shelter of the house and started edging through the shrubbery. The undergrowth was a regular jungle. It would have been impossible to slip up on Prell without his hearing if it hadn't been for the storm. Shorty Weber fired now and then at the pine tree. And twice Prell fired an answer. Jason Prell, so-called friend of old Mrs. Cronin, knew I had him tagged. At first I'd been guessing mainly, but he didn't know it. And he'd lost his head and made the guess prove out. And now he was apparently ready to risk murder or death rather than face a prison term. I was within 30 feet of him. He hadn't heard a sound. He was still firing at Shorty over on the terrace. His back was turned partly toward me. He didn't know I was near, so I leveled my gun. Get your hands up, Prell. Drop that gun. You covered. He whirled, peering into the darkness of the bushes, trying to see me. He knew I was close, but he couldn't tell where. He raised his gun, started to turn, and... I'm not quite certain what happened next. The light was bad, and I could hardly see him. Whether he stumbled accidentally or... Or what is something I'll never know. All I know is that when I walked over to him, he was dead. He was no good, Mr. Dollar. I always thought so, but Dolly swore by me at her fool. What about Barnaby, her husband? He couldn't stand Prell at first. Later, they got us tickets, thieves. Yeah. Well, it's a mess, Shorty, a real mess. Old things that should have stayed dead and buried on the bottom, they're all coming to the surface now. Tell me something, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? What about Dolly? Is this thing going to kick back on her? Will she get hurt by it? Yeah, Shorty, I'm afraid she will. Pretty badly. It was deep into the night, edging toward dawn, when I got back to the house. I changed out of my wet clothes, went to the game room, and got Dolly's necklace from under a chair cushion. I'd stuck it there when Prell had pulled the main switch and put the lights out. Then I went upstairs to look in on Dolly Cronin, quietly, just to check. But it didn't work out that way. Johnny, is that you? Yeah. I didn't mean to wake you. Oh, you didn't. I've been awake most of the night. Come on in, Johnny. All right. How are you feeling? Oh, just fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. Good. Isn't Laura Dean a nice girl? Huh? Yes, she is. I'm glad she came. Company for you, Johnny. Oh, yeah. Quite a storm we had, wasn't it? Oh, it was beautiful. All that lightning, wind, and the thunder. Oh, I haven't seen such a beautiful storm since I was little. Johnny, thought I heard shots a while ago. Shots? Outdoors, off toward the woods somewhere. Oh, it might have been lightning, thunder. Sounded like a gun, like somebody shooting. Well, sound plays funny tricks up here in the mountains. Oh, I guess so, but... Well... I've been thinking back over the past so much that makes the present a little unreal. 
I'm afraid the past is about all I have left now. Now, don't be so quick to sell this future of yours short. You've got a lot of years yet, good years. Well, I had a lot of good years. Good friends, good times, a good life. And best of all was Barnaby. You loved him very much, didn't you, Mrs. Cronin? I worshipped him. He was perfect. He never did a wrong thing in his life. Now that he's gone, is the one fine memory I always cling to. Oh, if I didn't have that, well, I just couldn't go on. Well, then let's hope you never lose that memory. Of course, there were other good friends, too, over the years. Like Jason Prell. Hmm. He is so quiet. And withdrawn, it takes a long time to get to know him. But he's been such a good friend to me. He's so patient with all this silly ignorance of mine about business problems. Yes, I'm sure he has. I just don't know what I'd do without him. Yeah. Now, don't you think you'd better get some sleep? In a little while. You know, Johnny, it's funny how things work out. In what way? I was born and grew up right here in this village. Yes, your housekeeper, Miss Atherton, told me the two of you were girls together. We were inseparable. Like I said, I grew up here and then I went away. And Barnaby and I came back and built this house. And we went away again. There were always so many places to go, new things to do. It's a big world, isn't it? And finally, Barnaby came back for the last time and died here. All alone, poor boy. And now I've come back. The place where I was born. Everything finally comes home, doesn't it, Johnny? Yes, nearly always. I'm very tired. I think I will sleep now. Be good for you. The necklace, Johnny, do you have it with you? I sure do. Here you are. So beautiful. And so many memories. All so long ago. Put it on me, will you, Johnny? Of course. Raise up now. Just a little. There. How do I look? Sweet enough to kiss. Well? Nice. You go to sleep now. Yes, sir. I'll only look at the necklace for one minute only. Then I'll take my pills and go to sleep. And then I'll dream up a dream. A great big dream. Good night. Dancing, darling. It's been a long time since anyone called me that. A long, long time. Good night, Johnny. And thank you. I left her and went downstairs and rustled myself a pot of coffee. I sat down by an east window and drank it cup after cup and watched the morning sun come up. Dream a big dream. Well, before many more hours, she was going to need a big dream. 
There was no way of keeping it from her, all of it. The fact that Jason Prell was dead, shot. That he'd attempted murder and tried to steal a necklace. And worst of all, that her beloved Barnaby had probably been as big a crook as Prell. Is it all right if a girl who can't sleep sits this one out with you? Sure. Pull up a chair, Laura. Like some coffee? Just black, thank you. I guess it wouldn't do much good to ask you what's been going on around here all night. Something has? Like I said, I guess it wouldn't do much good. Here's your coffee. Oh, thanks. That's how I found you, just followed the smell of this coffee. Mm, good. I guess if I said I heard somebody shooting up the place during the storm, you'd just say, really? Never use the word. And I guess if I showed you that broken window over there, you'd say maybe a pigeon flew in. Might, if I happen to think of it. I'm sorry all this kept you awake. Oh, don't apologize. I probably wouldn't have slept anyway. Why not? Guilty conscience? Don't be silly. I didn't even do it. Do what? Whatever it is I'm supposed to feel guilty about. Lying is what I had in mind at the moment. Oh, I do that all the time, but I never feel guilty about it. I just call it making up things. Like claiming you were the niece of Fritzy Morrell, <coughs> Mrs. Cronin's oldest friend. Gosh, went down my windpipe. Like claiming you're Fritzy Morrell's niece. Mostly I drink tea, but you already had the coffee Like made. claiming you're Fritzy... All right, all right. How'd you find out? Nothing very spectacular. She just didn't have a niece. I wasn't sure, but I thought she must. Everybody her age has at least one niece. What was the idea? Well? Well, I lived in the same rooming house she did. She liked me, talked to me a lot before she died last year. So when the invitation came last week, I got the idea of going as her niece. I didn't mean any harm by it. I just wanted to go to the party. All right, relax. That's about the way I figured it. Well, it turned out to be quite a party, didn't it? I hope I never see another one like this as... Johnny. Johnny, what's wrong with her? It was Miss Atherton. I got up slowly from my chair as she walked toward us and then stopped a few feet from the table. Her eyes were fixed on something far away and the look on her face was strange and grim. I think I knew even before she spoke. Mrs. Cronin is dead. There'll be another intriguing episode in our story of the Cronin matter tomorrow. Tomorrow, the questions and the answers for the living and the dead. The final payoff. And fate itself plays the last trump. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Dr. Bigby here. Dr. Bigby, I'm asking you for the second time now to come out to the Cronin place. I told you last night, Mr. Dollar. The circumstances are different now, a lot different. We don't need a doctor. We need a coroner. A coroner? Where are you calling from? 
The operator told me the phone out there was out of order. It is. I'm at a forestry station a mile down the road. Jason Prell cut the wires last night before he was killed. Jason killed? Shot to death during the storm. So that's how he ended up. It took a long time, but everything finally comes home. Yes. Mrs. Cronin said the same thing an hour or so before she died. Dolly, too. Her heart, Mr. Dollar? In a way, maybe. The dancing darling. Finally at rest. She... What do you mean, in a way? Dr. Bigby, Mrs. Cronin was murdered. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar at the Cronin Estate, Wells Falls, New York, to the Home Office, Surety Mutual and Trust Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Cronin matter. Expense account, final page. Item 13, 10 cents. A half pack of cigarettes I left with a farmer who gave me a lift back from the forestry station. The price of my own feelings at the moment would have been lower. About eight cents lower, in fact. I brewed another pot of coffee and sat down to wait for Bigby. But this time I laced the coffee with brandy. The sun was up by then, clear of the horizon, bringing a bright new morning and a brand new day. The storm was long over, and the world sparkled and danced. But too much of the night was still with me, and the past still too much alive. And yet, maybe Dolly Cronin was better off. She was a part of that past now, where friends were always true. Every minute of life was even more wonderful than the last one. And where she was still, and forever, the dancing darling. Good morning, Johnny. Oh, hi, Sylvia. I'm in the coffee business this morning. How about it? Please. Mm. Having yours with cream, I see. Yeah, bad night. Shall I make yours the same way? Right. I had a bad night, too. Thanks. Hmm. You look real beat, Johnny. Couldn't be any beater. Something pretty terrible happened last night, didn't it? Yes. Jason Prell is dead. Oh. And Dolly Cronin is dead. No. I loved her, Johnny. I didn't mean what I said last night about life always having been too easy for her, and you were right. It was just being frustrated, tied in knots and covering up. I loved her. She was sweet. Yeah, she was quite a girl. She had something, I don't know. She had love. She loved people, and they loved her in return. Maybe so. Anyway, I guess this belongs to you now. The necklace? The circle of fire? What do you mean it belongs to me? She made a will last night. I witnessed it. She left the necklace to you. I just can't believe it. Johnny, can I... Can I put it on? Why not? It's yours. She wanted you to have it. You look good in it. I just can't believe it, Johnny. Well, before you get carried away too far, maybe you'd better brace yourself. Oh, it's not mine after all. Oh, it's yours, all right. But it's not real. What? It's a good copy, worth maybe four or five hundred dollars, but that's all. Well, I, I... I don't understand. It's so well known. The, the circle of fire, it's been written up over and over. Yeah, from old records. But nobody's really examined it for years, since before Barnaby Cronin died. It's been locked up in a bank vault until I took it out. Was there ever a real one? Yes, originally. 
but it was broken up and disposed of years ago. Jason Prell knew it, was in on the substitution, I suppose. That's why he was so desperate to steal it from me and get rid of it before I found out it was a copy. He knew that if that deal came to light, it would call attention to some of his other activities, worse ones. What do you mean? Prell had complete charge of Mrs. Cronin's estate. He told me it was worth practically nothing. But according to records I saw in New York, it amounted to over a million dollars in the beginning. He was stealing her blind all these years. Oh, it's easy. She was alone in the world, knew nothing about business. She trusted him thought he was her friend. She trusted everybody, much too much. Well, she sure trusted the wrong ones, including her husband. Barnaby? Sure. What do you think disposed of the necklace and slipped her a copy after making such a big deal out of his fabulous wedding gift? A phony. And she worshipped him. The king. In her book, the man who could do no wrong. Well, in the business book, he didn't do much else but wrong. According to the records, most of his deals were pretty shady. Especially after he and Prell teamed up. Yes, Miss Atherton? Dr. Bigby is here to see you. All right, show him. Mr. Dollar. I wouldn't believe too much of what he says. He's a chronic drunk. Yes, I remember you telling me. Show him in. Yes, sir. Well... I was just thinking, Johnny. Mrs. Cronin didn't know any of this, I assume. No. She was safe in her dream world. And she thought she was giving me the real necklace. That's right. It's crazy. And kind of wonderful, isn't it? Just like that, she gave me something she thought was worth a half a million dollars. Just because I was nice to her and liked her. You know something, Johnny? What? I'm just as glad it is a copy. It's beautiful, and, and I love wearing it. I'd have been scared of the real one. And I'll always remember that, like that dream world of hers... She thought it was real. One more question left, but a big one. The question of murder. And I already had the answer. I was sure of it. And I knew there was nothing I could do about it. Dr. Bigby was a man under 60, but he looked years older. A harried man, tired and worn. He sat down for a moment and we talked. And I began to realize that here was another man who'd been under Dolly Cronin's spell. And who was shocked and hurt by her dying. It was a remarkable thing and a difficult one to explain, Mr. Dollar. Like many another, I suppose, I often wondered why I felt the way I did about her. It was a, a sort of magic she had. Yeah, I know. Even as a girl here in the village, she had that same power and had it without knowing it. Everybody loved her. No, not quite everybody. At least one person didn't. Yes, you mentioned on the phone the word murder. That's right, Dr. Bigby. Who killed her? A man we can't touch because he's already dead. Jason Prell. Well, he's done about everything else, I guess. I wouldn't put it past him. What do you base it on, Mr. Dollar? A bottle of pills. Prell supposedly went to Tupper's Lake last night and got a prescription filled for Mrs. Cronin. She took some of it this morning, an hour and a half before she died. There it is. I'd seen the bottle on the train coming up with a few tablets left on the same prescription. And these are different. Well, you're right on one count, Mr. Dollar. Those aren't what the prescription calls for. What do you mean, one count? I talked to the druggist at Tupper's Lake on the phone last night. He told me about Jason being in. All right, it still stands. He had the prescription filled and then changed the tablets, substituted these. It's possible. Would you happen to know what they are without having them analyzed? I've got a pretty good idea. 
But I'll wait until I've examined her before I'll say positively. Uh, Mr. Dollar, I'd like to explain why I wouldn't come out when you called me last night. Yeah, I wish you would. I'd been drinking. So I gathered. I'd been drinking that other time, too, and I'd made a mistake. I didn't want to make another one. Just what do you mean? When Barnaby Cronin died here, I signed the death certificate. Yes, I know. I hadn't treated him. He was dead when I came out. I called it a heart attack. I was drunk. And I was wrong. Barnaby was poisoned. Go on. I didn't suspect it until later. And then I was afraid to do anything about it. I'd signed that certificate and I knew it would break me. So I kept still. And I consoled myself with drink. And finally, it broke me. So the same end result was achieved. Look, Dr. Bigby, if Barnaby Cronin was here alone, then how was he poisoned? Alone? He wasn't alone when he died. She was here with him. Mrs. Cronin? Of course not. Why do you think he was always making trips up here, always by himself? I didn't know he was. For years, every week or two, the whole village knew about it. She was here with him that night. She's the one who called me, asked me to protect her good name. She's the one who poisoned him. And now she's had another try with the same poison. But why? Ask her why. Ring for her and ask her. That won't be necessary. <clears throat> well, I'll go on up and make my examination. Well, Miss Atherton, I'm asking, why? He was planning to break off our relation. He told me that night she'd finally won. That silly little fool had finally won. But I didn't let her win. I killed him. You're confessing the murder, you know. It doesn't matter now. I've accomplished everything I meant to accomplish. So it was you who changed the tablets in her prescription bottle and substituted the poison? Of course. It was so easy. For once in my life, things were just as easy for me as they'd always been for her. Will you have the sheriff come out, Mr. Dollar? I'd like to make my confession. It's odd how things work out sometimes, Mr. Dollar. Yeah. Mrs. Cronin said something like that last night. I was pretty certain when you showed me the tablets, but I wanted to make my examination first. What do you mean? After Barnaby died and I started to suspect Miss Atherton, I managed to steal the poison from her in order to analyze it. I substituted harmless tablets of the same general appearance. And those are what she's kept all these years? What she gave to Mrs. Cronin? That's right. They were perfectly harmless. But in that case... Dolly Cronin died from a heart condition. The tablets had nothing to do with it. In a sense, Dolly died the same way she lived. From natural causes. Expense account item 14, $83.90. Incidentals and transportation from Wells Falls back to Hartford. Expense account total, $263.30. End of account, end of report. Remarks? The insurance angle here seems a little muddy. Premiums were paid for years on an item that didn't exist. And yet, no claim was filed and none will be. So, well, I leave it to your legal eagles. Me, I'm beaten, tired. Maybe a little sad. I've come out of this with a kind of nostalgia. And for a time and place I never even knew. And I'm halfway in love with a girl back in that time and place. A girl I've never seen. 
Oh, sure, I know. It's a dream world and a dream girl. And none of it exists. But it's too bad. I wish it did. Because she must have been a honey. A real sweetheart. A dancing darling. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Remember, please, there'll be a new exciting story on Johnny Dollar beginning next Monday. Next week, the story of a man worth $50,000 who didn't have a cent to his name. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Virginia Gregg, Shirley Mitchell, Vivi Janis, Barbara Fuller, Benny Rubin, John Daner, and Parley Bear. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. Envy, one of the seven deadly sins and the sad motive of the five-part Cronin Matter concluded in the fall of 1955 from yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny will bring us a new case next week here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Ernest Canoy is a name that pops up frequently on our show, and with good reason. He wrote the scripts for some of the most distinguished shows in radio history— for just a few examples, The Columbia Workshop, X-1, The NBC University Theater, The Eternal Light, and Rocky Fortune. In 1953, he adapted an earlier work, The Marriage, into a vehicle for the husband and wife team of Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. The two actors alternated taking the lead in each episode, so quite a few of them featured Ms. Tandy as Liz Marriott, trying to break out of the stereotypical homemaker's role. That's the case in the show we're about to hear that features the literate, sophisticated comedy of Ernest Canoy. There are references to the Italian actor Anna Magnani, Vittorio De Sica's 1948 film classic The Bicycle Thief, the 1920s fad of flagpole sitting and its 1930s successor fad, Goldfish Swallowing, and Betty Smith's novel and its movie adaptation, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And if you listen closely to the first couple of minutes of the show, you'll hear that it used the same stock music that just a couple of years later became the theme song for the children's TV show, Captain Kangaroo. From NBC, November 15, 1953, it's Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin in The Marriage. Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin in The Marriage. The sponsors of this program offer no endorsement of the opinions, philosophies, stubbornness, or confusion of the persons represented therein. However, with the conviction that marriage remains the most popular domestic arrangement between friendly people... 
NBC takes pleasure in presenting by transcription one of the most distinguished couples in the American theater, Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin as Liz and Ben Marriott in the new dramatic series, The Marriage. The other day I saw a picture of a man in a magazine who was constructing a model of the Empire State Building out of bottle tops. And I wondered why any man would spend his time this way. Now, if it were a housewife, I'd understand. A housewife has certain hours of the day. Not many, but they do come up. When there's nothing to do but wait. I suppose you'd call early evening the waiting time. Like now, with dinner over and Pete and Emily in their rooms doing their homework. So you'd never guess how with the radio going. And me on the sofa, thumbing through a magazine waiting. This time it's for Ben, who's tied up at the office, or, or some conference, or who knows, maybe building something with bottle tops himself. One minute, dear. Lose your key again. Oh. I must see Mr. Marriott at once. May I come in? Why, yes. Uh, my husband isn't home. Oh, he's on his way. Oh. I phoned his office. You must excuse me, but he said to absolutely rush over here if anything came up. Well, I... Uh, uh, please sit down. Oh, thank you. My plane leaves tomorrow morning for Rome, and now this awful complication. The minute I saw him tonight, I knew there'd be trouble. He was wearing his Homburg. That's his difficult hat. Oh, Ben? He doesn't wear a Homburg. Oh, no, no, my husband. He's oh. such an idiot. Though we are fond of each other, despite all well, our... Well, I guess that helps. He's an absolute child. Maybe that's why I married him. He was so dependent on me. I couldn't do without him, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes, uh, I think I do. He's got his nerve acting this way with Anna waiting for me in Rome. Anna? Anna Magnani. I'm doing the costumes for her new movie. Oh. It's one of those marvelous Italian movies. You know, everyone's so terribly poor. It's like the bicycle thief, except she steals a Cadillac. Well, that ought to be simple to hide. <laughs> well... But I'm sure Mr. Marriott will clear this whole situation up for me. Oh, I'm sure. I've always found him charming, an absolute angel. Oh, I never did tell you my name. Forgive me. It's Lydia Otis. How do you do? I'm Mrs. Marriott. So it's sweet of you to be patient with this horrible calamity. Oh, that's perfectly all right. We have emergency calls just like doctors. Ben even gets called in the middle of the night. Really? Accident cases, suicide in the family. Once a lady got bit by a dog and phoned. Who won that case? Oh, Ben wouldn't take it. He never prosecutes animals. Never prosecutes. Well, you know, I, I just felt there'd be trouble with my husband before I left, and I tried so hard to make it easy for him. I introduced him to some charming women. Why, I found him a perfectly darling ballet dancer. Your husband doesn't like ballet dancers? Oh, dear. Didn't I tell you he's not my husband? We're practically divorced. Oh, well, practically is better than uh, none at all. And what do you do, Mrs. Merritt? Oh, nothing. Housewife. Children, too. Well, that's not exactly doing nothing. Uh, yeah, I, I know what the books say. It's supposed to be a career, but I wonder. Now, take yourself. Hello, Liz. Hello. This is over. Uh, How are you? I knew you were here. I checked back at the office. He's acted up again. He doesn't like the settlement. 
I thought he'd agree. He was wearing his tweeds that day. When he's being British, he'll agree to anything. If you'll excuse me... Oh, please, don't go. It'll be in the papers anyway. He'll say something stupid as usual. Now, just sit back. Would you like a drink? Oh, I'm late already, but thank you so much. Uh, Cigarette? You're a darling. There you are. Now, just relax. When's your plane leaving? Tomorrow at 10. You'll be on it. And I'll be there as your lawyer to put you on it. As for your husband... uh, Liz, dear, would you light me a cigarette, please? As for your husband, or ex-husband, very soon... Here you are. Thank you. I'll have a straight talk with him before you're out over Sandy Hook. And believe me, there'll be no more hitches to this divorce. Now you feel better? Yes. You're a dear. I am. I, I, I mean, <laughs> it'll be done. Your cigarette went out, uh, dear. Huh? Oh, thank you. Then I can leave without any worrying. Such a relief to have you take over. I'll cable you in Rome. Oh, I'll have to rush off now. I have a hundred appointments all the way to midnight. Can I get you a cab? Oh, no, I'll be all right. Oh, no, it's no trouble at all. <laughs> Mrs. Marriott, arrivederci. Oh, bon voyage. Ready to turn in. How's that book you're reading? I'm not reading it. Oh? I've got it open, but I'm not reading it. I'm thinking of her. Her who? Lydia. Lydia? L-Y-D-I-A. Lydia Otis. Ah. She does stay in your mind, doesn't she? Fascinating woman. Vibrant. If she were any more vibrant, her earrings would ring like chimes. I thought you'd break your arm reaching for a cigarette for her. As usual, I lit my own. Guilty as charged. Now, that look in your eye. Go on. I'm an interested spectator. You're really taken by her. And why not? She's attractive, intelligent, and you wanted to please her. I please all my clients. This, my dear, was a non-client please. It was a he pleasing a she. I'm not jealous, no. I'm Uh. just clinical. When you walked in and saw her, you lit up like a pinball machine. Off to Rome we go. Dear Anna is waiting. Arrivederci. Your mouth was wide open. I suppose my inlays were showing. I'm joking. Well, I'm half joking anyway. Liz, you have to admit she's living a full life for a woman, busy with all those activities. You have to admire her for that. Oh, you're so serious. Well, I am serious. I know you are. You're going to get up early and... Get down to the airport and put vibrant Lydia on the plane. You said so. I love to be there and watch you carry her up the ramp. I didn't get to sleep right away. Of course, I was teasing Ben about it, but it was more than that. She was exciting and vibrant, and he did light up in her company. I remembered when he'd he'd be pretty excited when he met me after work, long ago. And he'd listen to every word and he'd light up for me. What happened? And wasn't it partly my fault? I started out as a wife and mother and wound up taken for granted, half vacuum cleaner and half pressure cooker. Well, I started to count my sheep again and that ended my philosophy. 
The next morning, passing the supermarket, I couldn't help thinking of her in Rome, passing the Colosseum. I was starting to cross the street when my daydream was broken. Look out! Hey, kid, come back here. I want to talk to you. Hey, kid, come That's back. That's a fine way to drive. Huh? You almost hit that boy. Oh, look, lady, are you his mother? No, I'm not, but I have children of but my you're own. You're not his mother. Don't yell at me. You weren't very careful, mister. Look, lady, I'm a careful driver. Huh. See, see the sticker on my windshield? Merit driving award. You almost hit him, though. It could have been serious. Look at this intersection, lady. Just look at that. Every time I get near this corner, I pray. It's laid out like a Parcheesi board. Five streets crossing at the same time. How that fifth street ever got there, I don't know. There's no excuse for almost running over a child. Not looking for an excuse, lady. I'm trying to explain. I, I am very unhappy about this street situation. I did not build the streets. I did not lay them out this way. You be I... careful next time. Yes, ma'am. Can I go now? <laughs> Anyway, they ought to have a play street there. Still on that, dear? I don't see how you can be so casual about it when the lives of children are at stake. Perhaps your own children. The traffic problem is in the hands of what we trust are competent men. Politicians. And engineers who've made a science out of traffic control. You know, you're worried about one little street. There are thousands of streets, tens of thousands. That one single street intersection is all I know about, and it's dangerous. Something should be done. Ben, couldn't you do it? Me? Well, you're a lawyer. Lawyers can't do everything. If they can put their clients on a pain personally, they can just as easily get in touch with the police department and demand some action. I'll overlook the first part of that sentence. As for the second part, it isn't that simple. Don't you know anyone down there? Some contact. Only the man who takes my money for the parking ticket. Look, Liz, something ought to be done, sure. I just want to be practical and point out some of your problems. Go right ahead, I say, except I don't think you'll get anywhere. That's my summation to the jury. I fell asleep that night, but slept uneasily. I didn't know the boy who was scared by the car, but suddenly he had Peter's face. He was my boy on his way to school. He turned at the intersection to wave goodbye... And just then I heard a low, strange sound in my sleep coming closer and then louder, and it turned into the sound of a truck brake, and I called out, Look out! Baby carriage. What? Baby carriage. What, Liz? Baby carriage. Baby carriage? Liz, you didn't... I mean, are we? What are you talking about? Are we having another? Are we? No, dear, we're not. Go back to sleep. The next morning, I met them on the street. The women I'd meet every day, but never really know. The women with baby carriages, shopping, sunning themselves before going back to their housework. I told them my idea. They were with me. Then I did one more thing. Hello? May I speak to the news editor? It's very important. Thank you. Yes? 
Hello? A news editor? I want to report something that's going to happen, but hasn't yet. And when it does, you might want to have a reporter there. Who is this? This is Mrs. Elizabeth Marriott, and I want to tip you off that something of unusual interest will take place in just one hour at the intersection of 6th Avenue and 10th Street. Nobody on a window ledge, is it? We're getting too many of those calls. Oh, no, this is much more exciting. Axe murder? Oh, no, this has spectacle, my dear man. Will you send a reporter down, or shall I try another newspaper? 6th Avenue and 10th Street. Okay, we'll take a chance. Are you home? Hey, look at this. Stop waving that newspaper around. I've seen it. You've seen it? Middle page, your picture. I know. I arranged it. You arranged it? Uh-huh. Stop repeating my words as though you're struggling back to consciousness. Uh, uh, baby carriage brigade. Mothers protest traffic dangers. At noon today, some 20 to 30 mothers, formidably armed with baby carriages, successfully held up traffic at the intersection of 10th Street and 6th Avenue for 15 minutes. Did you really? Uh-huh. That's marvelous. Uh, for 15 minutes. And presented a petition to a police car for the installation of a traffic light. I borrowed the baby carriage. It was the photographer's idea. And the baby? That wasn't a baby, dear. It was a head of lettuce. Baby carriage. That's a wonderful... How'd you ever get it? Oh, you seem to forget that I once earned a living for both of us with my ideas. Hello? Yes, this is the Marriott residence. Who? Just a moment. For you, dear, the traffic commissioner. Thank you. Hello? Uh, yes, this is Mrs. Marriott speaking. Uh, ben, Ben, would you light me a cigarette, dear? <laughs> Mrs. Marriott, I'm Mrs. Sanders. Oh, uh, come in. Uh, oh. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. I won't stay but a moment. I'm from the section across the park. You don't know me, but we've certainly heard of you. Now, I'm with the parent teachers, and we've been wondering if we could get you over to our next meeting. Oh, well, I... We think you could help us get started on several projects. All we need is an example. Would you come? Well, I, 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 I don't know if I, uh, uh, well, I, I suppose I can. Well, yes, why can't I? I guess it just kept snowballing, as they say. I became known as the traffic light girl, the baby carriage bombshell, and other nicknames. It was kind of exciting. Fine, all right, all right, we're almost at, uh... You stand over here, Mrs. Marriott. Just be natural. Be yourself. Just want a half minute of home life to cut into newsreel footage of the latest baby carriage brigade. Uh, six so far, huh? Not bad. All right, boys, on the camera. Uh, excuse me, Sonny. I'm not Sonny. I'm Mr. Marriott. Yeah, how do you do? Say, uh, would you plug this wire into that socket? Huh? Fine. Oh, uh, Mr. Marriott, would you mind moving this table out of the room? Well, it's kind of heavy. Sure, uh... you can do it. Watch it! Okay, okay, skip it. Mrs. Marriott? Yes, if you're a salesman... No, no, if you please, I'm not a salesman. 
Do I look like a salesman? Well, it's, it's hard to tell. I happen to be against all types of door-to-door salesmanship, but I am in favor of national advertising. May I come in? Oh, uh, do. Um, uh, sit down. If it's anything to do with my no, husband... No, no, it's you we're interested in. My card, Theodore Willis of Adams Booking Incorporated. You're not a theater agency. Heavens, no. I dislike the theater intensely. We're a lecture bureau. Our job is to supply various civic, fraternal, and patriotic organizations with speakers for occasions large or small, whatever the subject from fall of Rome to tension is temporary. I don't understand why Normally, we deal with well-known authorities in their field, though you'd never know who is an authority on what these days. Who'd ever think you were an authority on traffic safety? But I'm not... In the public mind, you are. We deal with the public mind. Well, I'm not a lecturer. That is exactly our trump card. Let me tell you something, Mrs. Marriott. The age of celebrities is running out. What happened to the flagpole sitters? Stirred up a nation, and now, goldfish swallowers. Remember them? Oh, yes. Why, well, I knew a boy Gone. Was... Nobody remembers them. Movie stars replaced by 3D. Animal pictures coming back. The celebrity of today is built on feet of clay. Why? Why? No human element. Oh. Without the human element, there's nothing. We have, I dare say, been going on nothing for years. Humanity is the key. But I don't quite... Not the best-dressed woman or the minister of Luxembourg or the most married or divorced woman, but the common woman. How does that strike you? Well, I, uh... I think about it. It's sure fire. What will I lecture about? Women's problems. Women always have problems. I'll return in a day or two, and we'll discuss further details. Meanwhile... You can see how Mr. Marriott feels about it. Oh, you needn't worry about my husband. You see, he enjoys my doing this sort of thing. You might say he got me started. (laughs) Well, in a way, he did. What's this? Dear Ben, afternoon conference on international child care in backward areas followed by dinner. Would you remind Emily to bring evening dress to Hotel Collingwood, ninth floor. P.S. Dress in closet, love. I'm sorry, Mrs. Harriet is occupied right now. You can't go in there. Yes, but she wants to see me. No interviews until after the dinner. There'll be a press party then. I am not a reporter. Oh, you're not? I simply have this parcel to bring her. Now, if you'll please Give ask... it to me. I'll take it in to her. Here's a little something for yourself. Look, madam, I, I said haven't... I'll take it. Messenger boys aren't supposed... I'm not a boy. I'm Mr. Marriott. Mr. Marriott married Mrs. Marriott 17 years ago. Now, may I see my wife? Or do I have to come back with a license? I'll find out if she's available. Available? Now, listen, my dear woman... There she is. I see her. She's right inside the door. No, I don't think so, Liz. Gentlemen. I couldn't go to Copenhagen. That's Liz. absolutely out of the question. I have a family. It's quite impossible at the moment. Listen, that's her. Liz, it's me. Oh. Have you any identification? Yes. I have a tattoo on my chest. You... A naked woman. Here, I'll show you. Oh! Ben, how nice of you to come. Well, what's the matter, dear? You look pale. Now, Liz, I want to tell you... How's it going? Well, fine. Why didn't Emily bring the dress? She had some work after school. Besides, I wanted to come. Just to see what you're mixed up in. And anyway, why the afternoon and the evening? Isn't one enough? Oh, but dear, it's the same event. The evening dinner is the culmination of the afternoon. When are you coming home for the final culmination? Later. I'll make out all right. 
Want me to pick you up? No, I'll get a ride. Will you make out for dinner? Dinner? Oh, sure, dinner. Let's do that sometime, shall we? P.S. I'm in the phone book. Then it happened. I suppose I half expected it all along, but it was surprising just the same. I don't remember how long it was since I found someone waiting up for me late at night, grimly seated in a chair facing the door. Stop. <gasps> Stay where you are. Ben, you frightened me. 12.45 a.m. It's tomorrow. Do you realize that? How old are you? You're too old to be sneaking in this way. I'm not sneaking in. All right, walking in. You're not 16, and it's 1245 and one half. Now, Miss Goldilocks, I've drawn up a little brief for you. Let's see. Uh, fifth of the month, lecture. Tenth, lecture. Thirteenth, Rodale. Fifteenth, Bronx Protective Mothers League. Eighteenth, lecture. Address unknown. Twenty-second, Helicopter flight from Flushing Airport. Don't ask me why. Uh, 25th, Brooklyn Society for Reforestation. Thought they had a tree. Uh, 30th, that's tonight. That makes two, three, five, six, eight sorties a month. All very well, but enough is enough. Look at this house. I'm sorry. I, I guess I have neglected The laundry it. has forgotten to starch my shirt collars. I'll remember to speak to them. No heat in the radiator. I do not put heat in the radiator. Things are just falling apart, and your family. You never thought of that, did you? You never considered for one moment the psychological damage inflicted on your two children by your neglect. They love it this way. They need you. Next charge. Well, you must know I need you. <laughs> Stop that. Don't you like your wife to be vibrant and fascinating? Sure, in my own house, but not all over town. <laughs> What am I shouting about? I don't know, Ben. I just missed you terribly all evening. Did you? Missed you all month. I'm sorry, dear. I want you to stay home. Please come to bed at once. Ben, dear. Oh, are we agreed? On what? We haven't discussed anything yet. Well, let's talk about it tomorrow, shall we? I'm sorry I yelled at you. After all, you have a right to do what you want, but I have a right to yell. I know, Ben. Something's happened. I took a look into myself and, and shook something that's been asleep for a long time. Everything that's happened, I made happen. I realized I've been living like an iceberg, nine-tenths underwater. I decided to come up on the surface a little more. It's the way people ought to live, being involved, being interested, rediscovering their capabilities. Yes, but with moderation. I agree. Then what are we arguing about? Mrs. Marriott, if you can find time for it on your schedule, why don't you come over here and I'll kiss you? Ben and Liz Marriott will be back in just a moment. In the meantime, let us extend an invitation on behalf of our stars, Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, as well as the National Broadcasting Company, to all of you to drop by next week at this time for another half-hour observation and transcription of the marriage, written by Ernest Canoy. Lydia Otis was played by Fran Carlin. Others in the cast were William Zuckert, 
Edith Gresham, Reginald DeCoven, Abby Lewis, and Ted Osborne. The Marriage is an NBC radio production directed by Edward King. This is Bob Denton speaking. Ben, Ben, hmm. are you awake? Yes. Did you see in the paper about the terrible air pollution in the city? Do you realize... Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Liz. Before we unpollute the air, let's come to terms. Three days a week. Do you need three, really? At home. That includes the evenings. Definitely includes evenings. Well, good night. Good night. Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin in Ernest Canoy's comedy, The Marriage, from the fall of 1953 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. This particular Women's History Month, we have to mention that half a century ago, it was radio for the most part that, at the time, supplied the women's movement with an anthem. It was a song from 1972 that remained on the Billboard Hot 100 chart through the beginning of 1973, 50 years ago this year. And it was still being played on stations all over the country long after that. It's been mocked and spoofed, but it still surfaces as a statement of women's empowerment. Recorded in Hollywood on April 23, 1972 for Capitol Records, released on May 22nd and reaching number one that December, with music by Ray Burton and a lyric by the song's vocalist, the Australian Helen Reddy, it's I Am Woman. I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me down again Well, yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom for the pain Yes, I paid the price But look how much I gained If I have to, I can do anything I am strong It only serves to make me more determined to achieve my final goal And I come back even stronger Not a novice any longer Cause you deepen the conviction
Helen Reddy singing her own lyric, I Am Woman, a top 40 hit from 50 years ago. 20 years ago, she told an interviewer, I couldn't find any songs that said what I thought being a woman was about. I certainly never thought of myself as a songwriter, but it came down to having to do it. As far as the history of radio is concerned, Ms. Reddy described the typical reaction of the almost exclusively male disc jockeys of the day as, quote, I can't stand this record. I hate this song. But you know, it's a funny thing. My wife loves it. End quote. Celebrating Women's History Month, this is The Big Broadcast. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. The audio engineers are Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. One of the great devices that the Gunsmoke writers used was keeping Marshal Matt Dillon's background somewhat mysterious. But tonight, a woman appears from Matt's past in an episode called Bell's Back. It aired on CBS September 9th, 1956, as part of the series, Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers... And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Put away that cribbage board. We won't be playing tonight. Oh, why not? Have you found an easier mark? No, but you're going to hightail it up the street once you hear the news. Yeah? Matt, Bell's back. Bell? Bell who? Bell who? Bell Ainsley, that's who. <laughs> you got a mighty short memory for a man who used to eat dinner out of her place two and three times a week. Well, she was a good cook, that's all. Besides, I was... Three years ago. Oh, Matt, you know Doug gone well. You... Why don't you forget it, Doc? Um, is just Kreider with her? No. She's come back alone. Well, that's too bad. Too bad? Why? Just Kreider's no good. That's just why. He was wanted three years ago when he left here with her, and he's wanted even more now. Here, here take a look at this bulletin from Wichita. 
Pulled up at the Stockman State Bank, wounding two bank guards. Mm-hmm. Santa Fe, three counts of highway robbery. Lordsburg, hold up at the Butterfield stage. Driver killed. All right, so Jess Crider's a thieving killer. Everybody knows that. Well, that's why I'd like to see him come back. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? Guess who is back, Mr. Dillon? I already know, Chester. Yeah, but that ain't all. She's... Chester, if one more person comes in here and tells me about Bell Ainsley, so help me up. You're what, Max? Bell. She was right outside, I was going to say. Well, come on. Come on, Chester. I'll buy you a beer. Well, I... Gosh. Well, I'll see you later, Mr. Dillon. How are you, Max? I'm fine, Bell. Are you? Oh, a little older. Are you a visitor, or are you... Planning on staying? Oh, I'm staying. The town will let me. Uh, what about Just Kreider? Where is he, Bill? I don't know. And I don't care. I left him in Durango. I'm through with him, Matt. I see. I want to stay here with my father. He's, he's getting old, and my kid sister, Phyllis, well, she's grown into a young woman since I went away. And pretty bitter, I understand, when it comes to you. Uh, she'll get over it. Everybody will, if you'll help me, Matt. Help you? Three months after I left, I came back, if you remember. And I found the good people of Dodge had already tried and condemned me. What could I do but go back to Jess? Well, you chose to run off with him in the first place. Chose? Who knew whether I had? Who bothered to ask? You? Anybody? What are you saying? Matt, I rode out of Dodge, thrown across the back of Jess Crider's saddle, with a gag in my mouth and my hands tied. Oh. Why didn't you tell somebody that? Who'd have believed it? But he didn't keep your hands tied for three years, Bill. Matt, a woman has to have somebody. Somebody who wants her. And nobody here did. As bad as he was, Jess was my man. Yeah. Uh, what do you want me to do, Bill? Just tell people, that's all. If you believe me, just tell them how it happened. Evening, kidding. Well, where'd you get all the crowd? A trail herd's in. The bar double D from the panhandle. Oh? No? I, uh, I understand an old friend of yours came back last week. You know, a man tips his hat twice to a woman around here and he's married. Is that really all you did, Matt? Tip your hat twice? Yeah, just about. Have you talked to Bill? Well, in passing, I heard a story. You believe it, Matt? That's possible. It's the kind of a thing Just Kreider would do. 
I don't know for sure. Well, if it did happen that way and she's left him for good, then I guess maybe she's got some sympathy coming to her. Yeah. She sure didn't get much at home. Now, what do you mean? Well, she moved back in at the ranch. Yeah, so I heard. It was all right with her father, probably on account of her cooking. Uh, you remember her cooking, Matt? I remember old man Ainsley well enough. He worked both those girls half to death. Well, anyway, I guess her sister really raised Kane. Well, I figured that'd happen. She's hated Belle ever since the night she ran away with Kreider was taken away. But I didn't think she'd carry it so far. Now, what do you mean? Phyllis left the ranch yesterday and moved into town, Matt. She's got a room over at the Dodge house. What? Uh-huh. A 15-year-old kid living here alone? Yeah, I know. I'll go see her and talk to her, Kitty. But I don't think it'll do any good. Well, good evening, Marshal. Chester. Bloom. How are you, Dovey? Some of my guests been kicking up their heels, have they? Uh, Dobby, I understand that the youngest Ainsley girl, Phyllis, took a room here yesterday. Is that right? Yeah, she certainly did. Wanted to get away from that environment, I reckon. I can't say I blame her, Marshal. I know if my sister had been cavorting around for three years with a cutthroat like Jess Kreider, I... Dobby, would you mind telling the girl that I'd like to talk to her? Well, I can't very well do that, Marshal. Oh, why not? Because she up and left this evening. What? Yep. I've already let the room somebody else. She said she was leaving the country and wasn't coming back. Leaving the country? Well, was she alone? Well, now, she walked out alone, but I kind of had the impression there was some man waiting for her outside. And you let her go? Well, there wasn't nothing I could do about it. Well, you could have told somebody, or family, or me. She's only 15, Dobie. Well, that's growed up the way I look at it. Anyway, I figured it's just another case like her sister, Belle. It sure ain't none of my responsibility. Chester and I saddled up and rode out to the Ainsley Ranch, or a homestead it was, actually. A broken back spread with a flinty range and short water. When we got there, we sat and talked with Belle and her father, all polite and formal-like. And nobody saying much of what they meant. Chester kept looking at me funny because I didn't mention young Phyllis, but I'd decided against that two minutes after we walked in. And I still hadn't said anything when we left. Belle came out of the yard with us. It was nice of you to ride out, Matt, Chester. Well, I... Nobody else in town's even been near the place. Now, they're slow people to change, Belle. It takes them a while, I guess. they got to get over feeling kind of awkward around you, I guess. Well, it's not only the outsiders who feel awkward around me. Oh? Well, I guess you wondered where Phyllis was. She's moved out, Matt. She took a room in town. Well, she'll get over it. A girl can be pretty flighty at that age. I suppose so. Well, thanks for coming out. Sure. You ready to ride, Chester? Yes, sir. We'll see you again, Bill. I hope so. Good night, Matt. Good night, Chester. Good night. Mr. Dillon, you didn't say one word about Phyllis. Wait a minute, Chester. 
We're going to ride away from here now. But we're coming back later tonight. What? Didn't you notice how they acted? Old man Ainsley was scared to death. And Bell was jumpy as a young colt. Well, I did notice that, but... Bell didn't come back home alone, Chester. Just criders around somewhere. Crider was right there in the house tonight when we was, Mr. Dillon? No, he couldn't have been, Chester. There's no place for him to hide. Probably hold up in the barn. We'll look there first. Yes, sir. There's a lantern burning inside. Yeah. Now, you wait here and keep me covered. I'll edge up to the door and then go in fast. You be careful. Ryder? Jess? Come on in, Chester. He ain't here? No, but he has been. You see that blanket on that straw there? It's made up for a bed. Well, maybe he's up at the house now. I don't think so. The only horse in here is that old spavin mare Ainsley uses on the buckboard. Just Kreider to have the best mount he could lay his hands on. Maybe the two of them got spooked up and made a run for it. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Get your hands up, Matt. Well, well, uh... You too, Chester. Oh, uh... Jess? Jess? Forget it, Bo. He's too far away by now to hear you. What are you talking about? Well, take a look around. Didn't you have a couple of horses in here? Well, sure we did. Now, don't move. Either one of you. Gone. Jess! Jess! You might as well save your breath, Bill. He took both saddles and the packs. You know where he went? Well, I can guess. Where? When's the last time you saw him this evening? Just before dark. I brought him out some coffee. He said he was going to try to sleep. Matt, where'd he go? Tell me. There's not much point in holding a gun on us. Not now. Stay back, Matt. Let's have it, Bill. No. Thanks. Hell no. A man can breathe a mite easier without that thing staring him in the face. What's happened to Jess? Tell me. What do you care? You've left him, haven't you? You said you hadn't. Oh, I only came and told you that so you wouldn't get suspicious. Jess caught a bullet in that holdup at Elko. It was bothering him some, and we had to find a place to stay for a while. So you brought him home to the family, huh? And in less than a week, your kid's sister ran away from home. She didn't run away. I sent her into town. And why? What's the difference why? Because Jess was bothering her, is that it? What are you saying? He's always been known for it, Bell. Was that the reason? All right, that was the reason. She's my sister, Matt. And she's only 15. And Jess is your man, huh? 
Isn't that what you told me when you came to my office? Sure, that's what I told you, but never mind that now. I want to know what's happened to Jess. The same thing that happened to Phyllis, I guess. She checked out of the Dodge house this evening, Bell. Said she was leaving the country for good. What? A man was waiting for her outside. And Jess Crider left here with two horses. Get him, Matt. Go after him and get him. You know where he might be. Of course I know. I know everything about him. I've had three years to learn, haven't I? All right, then where is he? He'll only ride at night. He'll stop at sunup. There's an abandoned shack about a mile west of where Little Deer Creek runs into the Arkansas. Yeah, I know the place. Well, that's where he'll be. We've used it before. We, we stopped there on our way in. All right, Bill. Uh, that business about... Your hands being tied, being thrown across the back of Kreider's saddle. That part was true, Matt. All right, Bill. Come on, Chester, let's ride. All day, Mr. Dillon. He will, Chester. They just got here. Those horses are still sweating. He won't leave them standing there saddled for long. It wouldn't be too hard a chore to slip up through that plum thicket there at the back. No. If he fights, I don't want the girl in it. We just wait till he comes out. <sighs> Doggone if I can understand women at all, Mr. Dillon. I've had the same trouble myself a time or two, Chester. But why would that nice young girl want to go running off with a murdering outlaw like Jess Crider? Well, maybe it's more a matter of hitting back at her sister. She's let her hate for Belle build up till it's driven her half crazy, I guess. Somebody's coming out. It's him. Yeah. Easy now. We'll just let him get clear of the cabin. You stay down now. All right, hold it, Crider. You're under arrest. He's going for his gun. Have it your way. Okay, Chester. Yeah. It looks like maybe he got out of hanging. Yeah. You killed him. Why should you killed him? Why? You know what you've done? I know, Phyllis. Oh, no, no, you don't. Yes, I do. I've kept you from making an even bigger fool of yourself than you already have. Oh, what are you saying? I love him. We were going to be married. Well, we were. Phyllis, you better go home and talk to Belle about that. Oh, Belle. I'll never say a word to her again as long as I live. Now, you listen to me, Phyllis. You've got to get rid of that hate of yours. If you don't, it's going to ruin your life for good. Now, you go home and you talk to Belle and you listen to what she's got to say before you judge her. No, I won't go back. Yes, you will. I can't. Not now. Nobody will ever know about this, Phyllis. I promise you. Jess Crider was alone when I found him. Now, there's your horse. And he's still saddled. I can't. I don't want to. I know what you need, young lady. You see that plum bush over there? Well, I'm going to cut me a switch off of that, and if you're not out of here in one minute, oh, you're you wouldn't. Go- 
No, I wouldn't, huh? Well, you just watch me. Marshal. Yeah. I've been thinking, Marshal. Maybe I'll go home after all. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The script was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with editorial supervision by John Meston. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Virginia Christine, Ralph Moody, and Sammy Hill. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Bell's Back, an episode of Gunsmoke from the summer of 1956 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey, and Kenny Pirog and Kennedy Wright are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org and by all means visit us on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. There's a centennial this week that gives us a welcome occasion to salute our friends on 88.5 HD2 Bluegrass Country, an outgrowth of nearly 50 years of bluegrass music here on WAMU. And if you're a bluegrass fan and you don't know about bluegrass country, please visit them at bluegrasscountry.org. The centennial is that of Arthel Lane Doc Watson, who was born on March 3, 1923, a hundred years ago, the day before yesterday. The story goes that Mr. Watson was doing a live radio broadcast when the announcer said that Arthel was kind of a strange name and that he needed a nickname. Someone in the audience, no doubt thinking of Sherlock Holmes's sidekick, shouted, Call him Doc! And the name stuck. Doc Watson, who passed away in 2012, was the winner of seven Grammy Awards and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He was a virtuoso guitarist, fluent in several musical genres, and extremely knowledgeable about all of them. We're going to hear him as he was broadcast on New York Public Radio Station WNYC on the program Oscar Brand's Folk Song Festival. We'll hear a little bit from Mr. Brand's interview with Doc Watson at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, probably in 1970, and then we'll hear the maestro perform Brown's Ferry Blues. I know there's a Brown's Ferry Road in nearby Herndon, Virginia, so maybe this is local color. Accompanied by another virtuoso, his son Merle, here's Doc Watson on WNYC's Oscar Brands Folk Song Festival. What song would you use to open your program, do your part of the program tonight? I haven't thought about it. I'll have to think about that in a minute. Uh, 
What what will you be looking for exactly? Some kind of fast tune, I, I guess, or I'll prob- probably do Browns Ferry Blues or something flat pick, something flashy. If you don't quit drinking, he'll be high as a kite. Lord, Lord, I got them Browns very blue. He's drinking that block and tackle kind. He can walk a block and tackle that lion. Lord, Lord, I got them Browns very blue. I walked up to my girl's old man. My true love's hand, Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy He said, you love all little gluten instead of her hand, I got his foot, Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy Hard luck, Papa, standing in the rain, if the world was corn, he couldn't buy grain, Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy He runs around in second-hand clothes, he can smell his feet wherever he goes, Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy They won't come back again Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy Took my sweet with them too Cause she'd had a little drink or two Lord, Lord, I got them brown fairy blue. He said that's why I took her The great Doc Watson, whose hundredth birthday was two days ago, as he appeared at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, probably in 1970, broadcast on New York Public Radio Station WNYC and Oscar Brand's Folk Song Festival. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Time now for Dragnet, and about as slippery a devil as Friday and Romero have ever encountered. It's a case called... The Big Break, and it comes from December 14, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. The story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. You've been tracking a hold-up man for months. You finally get a line on where he's hiding. You know he's dangerous, well-armed. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, 
Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, March 18th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We are working the night watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Ed Walker. My name's Friday. It was 9.48 p.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery detail. Joe? Hi, you ready to go? Yeah, we better hustle. Here's your top coat, Joe. Oh, thank you, Ben. Uh, where's Tom? We can pick him up down the hall. He's checking out some tear gas shells. Might need him. How about the address? You confirm it? 2100 Buchanan Avenue. It's a corner house. Skipper? You know what to expect when you get out there. Don't take any chances. He's alone in the house, that right? Supposed to be? Yeah, that won't give you much of a break. How do you mean? He's heavy on guns. Two revolvers and a hunting rifle. Yeah. He's not shy about using them. Don't forget it. Right, Ed. Slash, Ben. Let's go. Okay. It's been a long haul. Yeah, I hope this washes it up. Hunting rifle, couple of revolvers. What do you think, Joe? Well, 18 robberies in three months. You know the guy as well as I do. Yeah. What's your guess? His name was Hoffman, George R. In our files, his criminal record dated back to high school days. Petty theft, grand theft, auto, burglary, armed robbery. His record included two terms at Preston Reformatory and one at San Quentin. Hoffman's latest campaign was a three-month run of armed robberies. We tried everything we knew to stop him, but it wasn't enough. We'd failed to get a line on him until one of Captain Walker's informants came up with a tip that Hoffman had been hiding out for the past month in a small bungalow on the corner of Buchanan Avenue and Selma Street. According to the information, the suspect had a good supply of food, ammunition, and three guns. 10.15 p.m., together with Sergeants Tom Gaffney and Slats Henry, Ben and I parked our car down the street and started toward the house. It was foggy. The street was poorly lighted. As we approached the house, we could see a light burning in one of the rooms at the rear of the bungalow. The light in the back room, Joe, just went out. Yeah. Slats, yeah. you and Tom want to cover the back? Right. Let's go, Tom. Be careful. Yeah. All right, Ben. Easy, huh? Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, Joe. Huh? Curtains in that corner room. I thought I saw a move. Come on, Ben, the front door. Yeah, come on. Come on, hit it. Yeah. Come on, hit it again. Yeah, Come on. They got it blocked or something. Something piled against Come on, once more. There we are. Watch the furniture, Joe. Yeah. That front room's clear. Joe, in the back. Come on. Side window. Where'd he go? Across the street. Got him pinned down behind that car there. He's in the car. All right, let's go for the tires. All right, Hoffman. Give it up. Cover this end, Slats. Right. Ben, that hedge across the street, you see it? Yeah, okay. okay. Well, let's run for it. Come on. Huh? You okay, Joe? Yeah. Hoffman, you haven't got a chance. Throw out your guns. Hey, Ben, give it back to him. All right, all right. I'm coming out. Throw out your guns. Throw them in the street. Here they are. All right, get out of the car. Hands behind your head. Come on. Uh-huh. All right. All right, hands behind your back now. Slats. Yeah? You want to get our car? Right, Joe. 
Who told you? Who gave you the tip? Does it matter? I made it easy enough for you. Lousy car wouldn't start. I'd be three miles away if it would have started. Better call the tow truck, huh, Joe? Let me give it a look, huh? Lousy luck, that's all it is. What was wrong with it, Joe? I tried it. It wouldn't start for me. You should have turned on the ignition. George Hoffman was taken downtown and booked on suspicion of robbery. At a special show-up, he was identified by more than a dozen of his robbery victims. Between his arraignments and his preliminary hearings, we worked together with the district attorney's office in lining up witnesses and preparing the evidence against the suspect. We figured we had an airtight case. Hoffman's trial in Superior Court was set for May 14th. Hi, Joe. Hi, Slats. What's doing? It's still arraigning, Hoffman? Yeah, this trial's coming up. Hey, hmm? what happened to your eye? Yeah, how about that? I'll never live with that now. Yeah, come here, let's see. This real black eye I ever had. Had them bruised plenty. They hurt, you know? Yeah, how'd that happen? Well, every week Gaffney and I go up to the neighborhood boys' club after work to help coach the kids in sports, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, last week we had boxing lessons. Yeah. I was coaching this one youngster. He turned out to be a lot quicker than I thought. You're really connected. Mm -hmm. I guess everybody in the building has heard the story, huh? Yeah, just about. Gaffney took care of that. Captain called me in this morning, asked me if I wanted to file assault charges against the kid. Some joke. Mm -hmm. Never fails. You still coaching the kids up there? No, not this week. Kids are supposed to get lessons in wrestling. I'm not taking any chances. Yeah? They've been watching television for months. I'll see you later, man. Yeah. Okay. Oh, nice, nice. All right, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. Put your coat on, Joe. Yeah? What's the matter? George Hoffman. Yeah? He just broke jail. The morning of his escape, Hoffman was scheduled to appear in Superior Court for arraignment. According to routine, he was taken from his county jail cell on the 12th floor of the Hall of Justice and escorted to the jail shower room on the 14th floor. There he was to take a bath, changed to his civilian clothes for his appearance in court. While he was in the shower room, he turned on the hot water faucets, filling the room with steam to hide his actions from the guard. He succeeded in forcing his way out through one of the windows, climbed up one story to the roof. Realizing that he couldn't escape down through the building, he lowered himself over the ledge of the roof and using the narrow crevices between the bricks to hold on, he climbed seven stories down the outside of the building. At the eighth floor, he found an open window and got inside. He slugged the bailiff who tried to stop him and then ran down the remaining flights of stairs into the street and disappeared in the crowd. Twenty minutes later, he robbed a dentist's office at 3rd and Los Angeles streets and got away. Police and sheriff's deputies covered the city for him. Ben and I were among them. 11.55 p.m., we checked back in with Captain Ed Walker. You want to cut that speaker, Ben? Yeah. Nothing. 
Not a trace of him. He must have a good friend someplace in town. Everything's covered. His friends, relatives, his hideout, everyone he knows, every place he's ever been. We've plugged every loophole we can think of. The depots, terminals, the airports, still no trace of him. Well, I don't know. It sure is a strange one. No stranger than climbing down the side of a building. Did you check that story out, Ed? It's the truth. Apparently Hoffman planned the thing out pretty carefully. Well, how do you mean? The sheriff's men talked to some of the prisoners in the jail. They said Hoffman was practicing for it since the day we put him in there. Uh-huh. He'd work out five to six hours every night building up his hands and fingers. How'd he do that? Use the upper bunk in his cell, hang from the edge of it with the tips of his fingers. He'd do it for hours, pulling his body up and down. Made little grooves in the wall, dug his fingertips into them. Prisoners say he got so he could hold himself up like that ten minutes at a stretch. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. How about the bailiff he slugged? He'll be all right. A couple of bad bumps on the head, that's all. Robbery, Walker. Oh, yeah, little John. I sent him out about ten minutes ago to relieve you. Yeah, they ought to be there pretty soon. Right. How about our schedule, Ed? As far as I know, we're going all night on this thing. Sheriff's office is the same. Mm-hmm. You two were relieved at 11.30. Better check back about 5.30 a.m. Okay. Right. It's a hot shot. I got it. What is it? Drugstore holdup. They think it's Hoffman. The scene of the holdup was the Rex Lake Pharmacy on the corner of Pico Boulevard and Pine Lake Street. The victim, a Mr. Clarence Geringer, told us that the holdup man had entered through a rear door, slugged him, and escaped on foot with his overcoat and about $150 in cash. We showed him a number of mug shots. He identified George Hoffman as the bandit. A special detail of men were ordered on a thorough search of the general area around the drugstore. No sign of the suspect. The citywide dragnet continued all that night and into the next day. No developments. The search went on. A week passed. Two weeks. At 10 p.m. on the day Hoffman was scheduled to be tried in Superior Court, he beat up and robbed a 40-year-old liquor salesman in the Highland Park area. Again, he made good his escape. Routine investigation failed to turn up a single lead. June 8th. The suspect was still at large. The legwork continued. 817, is that the address you got? Yeah, he said it was near the corner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there it is. The Townsend Hobby Shop. Yeah, let's go in. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, look at the electric trains. Look at that one. Beautiful layout, huh? Mm-hmm. I guess that's all they handle in here, electric trains, huh? There must be money in it. Look at those signals there and switches. They're all automatic. wonder if my boy's old enough for a train yet. There must be the manager over there. Come on. Mm-hmm. Say, uh, excuse me, sir. Just a moment, please. Be right with you. Got to check this transformer. All right. Huh? Automatic coupling on the tanker car looked out of kilter. My mistake. No? Well, let's see, Jim. Yep, she's a dandy, isn't she? Sure is. Uh, I'm sorry, gentlemen. Have to keep up our maintenance on the rolling stock. Uh, what can I do for you? Police officers, we're looking for a Mr. Townsend. Oh, yes, I'm Roy Townsend. Are you the sergeant I talked with on the phone? Yes, sir, that's right. This is my partner, Sergeant Romero. Hi, Mr. Townsend. Uh, you mentioned that you might have some information for us. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I may have. About that uh, fellow who climbed out and escaped, uh, oh, it was in all the papers. George Hoffman. Uh, Hoffman, Hoffman, that's it. I'm a pretty good one for faces. I think I might have seen him last night. Where was that? 
On my way home from the meeting, I belong to a model train club. Don't get enough of it here every day. Yes, sir. We'd like to know about this man that you saw. As I say, I saw him going into the order court just down the street from where Mother and I live. It was pretty late, after midnight. Where do you live, Mr. Townsend? Over by Pasadena, Royal Oaks Avenue. I know Mrs. Cox at the auto court very well. I see. Well, this man that you saw last night, you sure it was Hoffman? I saw his picture in the paper when he climbed down and escaped. Uh, I don't say I'm positive it was him, but I'm good on faces. Well, uh, wonder if you'd mind checking through these pictures. Oh, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this one. He's the one I saw. Am I right? That's Hoffman. Do you happen to know if he's staying there at that auto court? Oh, yes. He's been there for a month. Say, Sergeant, if you find out it really is this Hoffman, don't tell Mrs. Cox at the auto court. It'll just break her heart. Oh, is that so? She's sort of an amateur detective. She thinks she knows faces better than I do. After we left the train shop, we called the office and filled them in. Captain Walker called Pasadena and notified them. Then we drove out to the auto court where the suspect was reportedly seen. Yes, you want something? Yeah, are you Mrs. Cox? Yes, I'm the manager here. If you want lodgings, we're filled up. You might try the Golden Eagle straight down the street there. Police officers, Miss Cox, do you have a Mr. Hoffman staying here? Hoffman? No, I don't. Got a Hoffmeyer, though. You sure that's not it? Well, look, would you look at this picture, ma'am? Recognize it? Yes, but his name's not Hoffman. It's Kane. Number 23. He's not in, though. Left this morning. Oh, is that so? Yes, won't be back for another hour. You are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. Before going on stakeout at the auto court where George Hoffman was registered, Ben put in a call to the office. The owner of the court, Mrs. Cox, gave us a pass key to cottage number 23 where the suspect was staying. We advised her to say nothing to Hoffman when he returned. We went to cottage 23 and waited. An hour passed. Hoffman failed to show. Another hour went by. Still no sign of him. Well, what do you think? Oh, you got me. I don't know. More than an hour overdue. No chance he could have been tipped. Well, I don't see how. Mrs. Cox is the only one who knows we're here. There's no reason for her to warn him. I don't know. His things are all here. His clothes. Well, we've had longer waits than this. Relax, huh? Yeah. Now, wait a minute. You see who it is? Man, coming from next door. Joe? Okay, I'll cover you. Open it. Oh, your new telephone directory? Oh, yeah, thanks. Anything wrong? No, there's nothing wrong, thanks. New phone book. Yeah. We waited another hour. George Hoffman still had failed to appear. At 4 that afternoon, we checked with the office. No word. At 5.30, we were still waiting. I was just thinking, Joe. Yeah? That fellow Townsend in the train shop. That sure must be a dandy hobby, electric train. Yeah, it runs into money, though, doesn't it? Well, I think I'll talk to the wife about it. Their education, you know. My boy sure get a kick out of having his own train. He's pretty young, isn't he? Three years old? Well, I could show him how to work it, put things together for him. I'll get it. All right. Yeah? Oh, yeah, Lightning. Uh, when? Okay, thanks. 
What's doing? Skipper just got a call from Pasadena. Yeah? They picked up Hoffman ten minutes ago. The suspect, George Hoffman, was taken back to Los Angeles and lodged in county jail. This time, there was no escape. At his superior court trial on August 16th, he was convicted on several counts of armed robbery and sentenced to the state penitentiary. From August to January of the following year, the months went fast. We washed up a string of liquor store holdups just before Christmas, got two days off. My Uncle George and Aunt Allen came down from Renton, Washington, to visit with my mother during the holidays. In January, Ben was off work for a week with a bad dose of flu. Another five months went by. Toward the end of June, we got word that George Hoffman was no longer at the state penitentiary. After serving 11 months, the former holdup man had been paroled into the Army with the provision that he serve overseas. Another three weeks passed. July 12th, Tuesday, Ben and I had lunch at Koken's Cafe and checked back in at the office. I wish Koken would change his menus a little oftener. Fried beans and pastrami sandwiches. Seems to have the same thing every time. Well, you sure dug into them. I got the idea that you like them. Oh, like them all right. I just eat too much, that's all. Three sandwiches, two plates of beans. No wonder I never eat dinner. Yeah. You two back from lunch? I want to grab a sandwich. Yeah, go ahead, Slats. We can cover. Okay, thanks. Say, there's somebody waiting in the next room for you. He wants to see you. Okay, see you later. Right. Want to see who it is, Joe? I'll check the book. Yeah, all right, fine. Yes, sir. My name's Friday. You want to see me? Yeah, that's right, Sergeant. Remember me? George Hoffman? Oh, yeah, Hoffman. The Army uniform there, I didn't recognize you. Yeah, I thought it might fool you. I guess you heard about me. Good break, huh? I'm glad you feel that way. How you doing with the Army, huh? Pretty good. I like it. That's fine. Just thought I'd drop up and see you, fellas. Uh, you still with that partner you had? What's his name? Uh, Rodriguez? Romero. Yeah, yeah, we still work uh, together. Yeah, Romero. I knew it was some kind of name like that. Yeah, well, come on in, Hoffman. Oh, thanks. Hey, Ben. George Hoffman here. He stopped in to see us. Oh, yeah. Hi. Been a long time, Hoffman. How are you? Pretty good, Sergeant. Thanks. Uh, just thought I'd stop by, you know. Sure there's no hard feelings? Oh, sure thing. You got any idea when you're going overseas? Uh, boys in my outfit figure day after tomorrow. That's kind of one reason why I dropped in to see you. Well, how's that? Well, I, I know it's pretty nervy, but I got lots of that. You see, uh, a bunch of us are on leave till tomorrow noon. Figured we'd go out tonight, and I'm a little short. You know how the Army pays. Okay, well, how about a couple of bucks, George? Will that do you any good? <laughs> yeah. Sure as swell you, Sergeant. Believe me, I'll see you get it back. Well, here's a couple more, Hoffman. Might help out. Well, it's no use telling you how much I appreciate it. I, I give you my word, I won't forget it. I'm going to pay this money back to you. Oh, forget it, George. We're glad to help you out. Well, thanks again for the touch, huh? Sure nice of you. Okay. Now, drop a card if you get a chance. Like to hear how you're doing over there. Sure thing. See you later, huh? Right. Good luck to you, boy. Well, looks like a turn for the better anyway, huh? Mm-hmm. But it was my last two bucks, doggone it. It never failed. Well, we had to give him something. Yeah, but what do I do for lunch money tomorrow? <laughs> 2 p.m., we drove out to the Wilshire District to interview a robbery victim. We brought him back downtown and took his statement. 4.30 p.m., we checked back in with Captain Walker. Hi, Skipper. Henry says that ex-con George Hoffman was in today. Yeah. Talk to him. Yeah, that's right, Ed. Why? Have a look. Thanks. The MPs left about 20 minutes ago. Swell. 
Your two bucks went for nothing, Ben. Hoffman's wanted. Huh? Broke out of army prison 10 o'clock this morning. Together with the army authorities, local officers joined in the citywide search for George Hoffman. At 10 o'clock that night, a food market on Santa Fe and Rialto was robbed and the proprietor beaten. From our mug shots, the victim identified Hoffman as the holdup man. Shortly after midnight, a drugstore on Crenshaw was held up. Hoffman was again tabbed as the suspect. The next two days, the search was intensified. No leads. Two more days went by. Late Saturday morning, we got a hurry-up call from the detail on duty at the Union Station. Hoffman had been reported in the vicinity. Ben and I drove down to the depot to check with the officer in charge, Slats Henry. Spot him, Joe? No, let's have a look back by the ticket counters, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there he is over by the phone booth. Come on. Hi, Slash. Hi. Looks pretty good. What's the story? One of the newsboys up the street gave us a tip. About an hour ago, a guy gave him a dollar to come down here and buy a ticket for him. Ticket to Phoenix. Yeah? Kid came in, bought the ticket, went back up the street and gave it to the man. Mm -hmm. We showed the kid a bunch of mug shots. He picked out Hoffman's. Yeah. He's not wearing his army uniform, huh? No. Brown suit, dark blue overcoat, no hat. That's what the kid told us. Any idea which train he was taking for Phoenix? Not exactly. He asked when the first train for Phoenix was. Newsboy told him 3.35. Mm-hmm. Ten minutes to 12 now. You got enough men to handle it, Slats? Everything's covered. Only one thing lacking. Yeah? Hoffman. While the stakeout continued on the Union Station, Ben and I, together with Gaffney and Henry from robbery, covered the bars, restaurants, and hotels in the immediate area for a sign of the suspect. 2.30 p.m. What do you think? Well, we better head back down for the station and see what's doing, huh? Yeah, okay. I'd like to have a dime for every mile we've logged on this case. Yeah. Joe. Hmm? Have a look. Where? Across the street, dark blue overcoat. Same build as Hoffman. I'll bet on him. Come on. He spotted us. Yeah, that's Hoffman. Come on. Pick it up. Yeah. I lost him, Joe. Where'd he go? Turn down First Street. Come on, hurry. Yeah. Across the street, Ben. Yeah. Watch the traffic. Where'd he go? I see him. That antique store on the corner. He ran in there. Come on. Yeah. There he is. All right, Hoffman. Out of the way, mister. All right, hold it right there, Hoffman. I'm coming out. Move. Watch it, Joe. I said I'm coming on, you hear me? You're going the hard way, George. Come on, drop it, drop it. Hoffman. All right, on your feet. Come on, get up. Yep. Right, get your hands behind you. Sure. What good's it going to do you? All right, mister, let's go. What good's it going to do? I already proved it. I can break jail any time. I proved it twice. You're going right back in again. What's that prove? The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. 
On October 8th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, sitting in County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. George R. Hoffman was tried and convicted on several counts of robbery and received a life sentence as a hardened criminal. After serving ten months of his sentence, Hoffman attempted an escape and failed. A few weeks later, he took his own life in his prison cell by hanging. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet portions transcribed from Los Angeles. Dragnet, the big break from the summer of 1950 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show. The audio engineers are Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog, and this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. If you haven't heard of the antinomian controversy, don't fret. It was a theological dispute among American Puritans of the 17th century, and it doesn't really figure in the You Are There episode we're about to hear, but at the center of the argument was Anne Hutchinson, an extraordinary figure whose role in American women's history has to be remarked. She was charismatic in both the personal and religious senses of that word, and she was put on trial in the Massachusetts Bay Colony long before the separation of church and state had taken hold. We're going to hear a recreation of that trial now, as it might have been covered by CBS News if radio had been around in 1637. That was the conceit of the network's series, of which this September 26, 1948 episode is an example. You are there. Hi, out into the park. This is Don Hollenbeck inside the Newton Meeting House across the Charles River from Boston Town. <laughs> On this bleak seventh day of November, 1637, Mistress Anne Hutchinson, called by some the Scarlet Jezebel of America, has still not arrived to face the general court in this tiny Puritan house of worship. Mistress Hutchinson, according to her accusers, is the most evil, the most immoral, the most disruptive influence in the Bay Colony. She is still resting in her home across the river in Boston, conserving her strength for the ordeal she is about to face. This woman of 46, who has borne 13 children and is expecting her 14th child, will be charged with conduct unbecoming a woman and a Puritan Christian. The meeting house here in Newton is packed. The seats are long, hand-hewn benches, and I can attest they are the most uncomfortable things I've ever sat on. November 7th, 1637. Anne Hutchinson goes on trial in Puritan New England. You are there. Anne Hutchinson, the first American feminist, defies the right of a few to rule the minds of many. CBS takes you back 311 years to an obscure but moving episode in the fight for freedom of speech and conscience. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there, you are there. 
You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, the Newton Meeting House in Puritan, New England, and Don Hollenbeck. About half as many more have crowded inside it. Of course, there are no women here. Among the Puritans, it's considered unseemly, really unthinkable for a female to be present at an official gathering of men. Here today are prominent brethren who represent practically every settlement of the colony. They're dressed in somber cloaks and Geneva caps, and they certainly look like a stern lot, their faces drawn into the tight lines of men who know they are about to do their duty. Probably the severest critic of Mistress Hutchinson is Pastor John Wilson, one of the leading clergymen of the colony. Pastor Wilson and several clergymen are here with us now. Mr. Wilson, if Anne Hutchinson is judged guilty, what will her punishment be? The judgment of God decrees that she be banished into the wilderness. Well, now, when you say she, Mr. Wilson, do you also mean Anne Hutchinson's husband and their 11 children? I dare say we will not permit her to leave her devil spawn to be a charge upon the state. As for her husband, he will, no doubt, as he has in the past, follow in her wake, clinging to her skirts instead of being master in his own home. Well, isn't being banished into the wilderness almost the same as a sentence of death when you think of the hazards of winter and the danger from the Indians? We risk greater danger if we permit her to stay among us. For if we tolerate her in our midst, she will bring destruction upon our heads. Mr. Wilson, we understand the charges against Mistress Anne Hutchinson are blasphemy, sedition, and endangering the peace and safety of the Commonwealth. Aye, and more, much more. Well, those are pretty broad charges. Maybe you could be more specific. Mistress Hutchinson has cast filth in the faces of the chosen of God, the ministers and elders of the Commonwealth. She insists on the right to criticize the Lord's servants, even to the extent of claiming we are all anti-Christian in our teachings. Yes, but Mr. Wilson, Mr. Daughter of sir. Satan has openly affirmed that we all, all of us, stand equal in the sight of God Almighty. By the Father God, if that be so, then every heathen is as good as a Christian, and all sinners can gain entrance to heaven. Marquis, she has spread her foul heresies to the misguided souls who gather at her home, imbibing the poison that flows from her lips. And if this be not enough, she holds by the vile doctrine of free love. Yes, Mr. Wilson, there are some here who say that Anne Hutchinson is being tried not for violation of church law, but of the colony's civil law. Sir, there is only one law in this commonwealth, <laughs> the law of God Almighty. Here, anti-Christian common law does not exist. But the supporters of Mistress Hutchinson say the commonwealth should be governed by the civil charter, the charter which... The king granted the Massachusetts Bay Company. Would you put the law of man before the law of God? This, this holy book contains all the laws we need live by and judge by. Well, you believe then that civil affairs should be administered by the church. Aye. But what of the rights of man, sir? The Magna Carta. Didn't you Puritans flee England because you objected to the invasion of your civil rights by Bishop Laud? Ha, hark ye, brethren. This is from the, this is from the hamper of our Jezebel. But Mr. Wilson, sir, Mr. Wilson, Pastor Wilson and the clergyman have left our microphone in some heat. There is hardly one among these ministers who hasn't felt the sting of Anne Hutchinson's sharp tongue and her ready wit. While we were speaking to Pastor Wilson, the seven magistrates arrived, and we understand that Governor Winthrop, who presided at the trial, has left his home in Boston and will be arriving shortly. Ned Calmer's across the river in Boston, outside Mistress Hutchinson's home. For a report on what's going on there, we take you now to Boston and Ned Calmer. This part of Boston is called the Spring Gate. It's the heart of the town. There's a small reservoir here, and 
The people come to it to fetch water, to tarry a while, swap gossip, and exchange news. And Ann Hutchinson's house is on Spring Lane, directly across the road from the reservoir. Her house is one of the most spacious in this town of 1,500 people. Looks like a bit of old England transplanted in America. It stands there in sharp contrast to the simple cabins and the frame houses scattered along the hilly pastures of this peninsula on which Boston Town was founded just seven years ago. Winter has come early this year to New England. Considerable snow fell yesterday. Despite the weather, however, and the sharp, piercing wind that we feel, there's a small knot of people here waiting for Mistress Hutchinson's appearance. Many of them are her supporters. And with me at our microphone are Goodman Paul Dyer and his wife Mary. Mary, will you come a little closer to the microphone? I understand that only last week you were placed in the stocks in Boston Common for standing up in church and speaking in Anne Hutchinson's defense. Aye, and I would suffer the stocks a hundredfold rather than stand mute and hear preacher Wilson liken that saintly soul to an abandoned woman. It seems that practically every woman in Boston has a good word for Anne Hutchinson. Why would you say, Mary, why is she so popular? I'll tell you why. Let there be a soul in dire need, man or woman, and there stands Mistress Anne to share about it. Let there be a child, stricken with illness, and there by the bedside will be Anne Hutchinson, ready with her healing arts to make the child well again. And she was so many children of her own. You feel, then, that it would be a distinct loss to the women of this community if Mistress Hutchinson were banished? Aye, the elders would be taking our very spirits and casting them into the wilderness with her. Before Mistress Anne came to these shores three years ago, we women were naught but kitchen drudges and breeders of children, no better than swine for all the life that lived within us. Our minds were closed, our lips were sealed, for the men would have it that it behooves us not to think and discourse upon the words of the Lord. This is the province of man, they would say. It's small wonder, then, that so many of us were distraught. Ah, even as Mistress Allen, poor soul, who did away with herself and her child in a moment of dark despondency. And when Anne Hutchinson came, all these things changed? Indeed, they changed. We felt a communion of spirit. Mistress Anne taught us that we could think, and that if we could think, we as the men had a right to speak. And she inspired and gave us example, and no more were we clouded in darkness. Aye, now there's a place for us. Now, it's not a mean thing to be a woman, but a noble thing, a worker in God's vineyard. And you, Goodman Dyer, do you, do you share your wife's sentiments about Mistress Hutchinson? Aye, I share them. Truth it does seem wondrous to me that so much good sense can come from the plate of a female, but sense indeed it is. Look you, sir. In old England, I was bondsman to a great lord. I tilled the soil, tended its sheep and swine, and never could I call a fingernail of soil my own. I crossed to these shores and found hope of being a freeman, a freeholder, in a new world where land was good and plentiful for all. Well, don't you own land? The likes of me, a commoner owned land. I have a bit of silver in my poke, but even so, one dyer can neither vote nor buy land unless he be a member of the church. And you're not a member of the church. Faith, nay. I would indeed be one, and so would my good wife. But only a select few are permitted membership in the church. Well, what is Mistress Hutchinson's stand on all this? She would have the church mind its church affairs and meddle not in matters civil. And if this were so, then you could buy land, is that it? Aye, and I stand not alone. There'll be scores of brethren like me. We have stout hearts and willingness to better our estate, but we find ourselves fettered like horses to the plow of a master. If Mistress Anne be punished, we will lose our guide and our protector, for the elders will not stop with her. She hath planted many a seed in our minds, and they know full well that these seeds will grow and bear fruit unless they crush the seedlings underneath their feet. Thank you, Mary and Goodman Dyer. We, Mrs. Hutchinson has just come out of the house. She's leaning on the arm of her husband quite heavily. 
The people are making a path for her. She's going down to the shore of the Charles River, where she'll embark for Newton. The evidence of strain shows on her face, yet she carries herself erectly with a proud, almost a haughty carriage. Hard to believe that this remarkable woman has borne 13 children. Two of them died in England and is now expecting her 14. She looks young for her 46 years. A striking woman, I would say. Now on her way to face what may be the most critical moment in her life. This is Ned Calmer. I return you now to Don Hollenbeck in the Newton Meeting House. Governor Winthrop arrived a few minutes ago. He's consented to an interview. The governor is now talking to the magistrates. We've asked him to join us. Governor Winthrop is a tall man, rather thin, his face long and narrow, its thinness accentuated by the pointed beard at his chin. The governor's approaching now. We've asked him for an explanation of the procedure which will be used in the trials. Governor Winthrop, sir. Yes? The administration of justice here in the Massachusetts Bay Colony seems rather unusual to one accustomed to English jurisprudence. Why is it, for instance, that Anne Hutchinson will have no defense counsel? She has a defense counsel if she wishes to employ him. For he, our Lord Savior, stands ready to defend the righteous... If they are righteous. But, Governor Winthrop, if I may say, Sir Anne Hutchinson must call upon God to defend her, but you, a man, will prosecute and judge her. Do you consider that quite fair? Our purpose is neither to prosecute or judge, Mistress Hutchinson. Our purpose is to save her and win her back to the true light. Mistress Hutchinson's jury will be seven magistrates. Is that correct, sir? It is correct. Well, uh, how will the jury arrive at its verdict? If Miss Hutchison can justify her conduct by the written word of God as recorded in the holy book and convince the magistrate of her righteousness, she will stand justified in the eyes of man. If not, then the Lord's punishment will be invoked, for the Lord will have borne witness against her. But, Governor Winthrop, isn't that the law or the order of a theocratic society? And if you hope to establish democracy here, won't you have to do some... Democracy, sir? It is not our intention, no, nor it ever will be, to establish a democracy in this Christian colony. A democracy, sir, in my opinion, is the meanest and worst form of government. And any civilized nation accounts it so. I, for one, feel that the best part of a community is always the least. And of that least part, the wiser are still less. And these few should rule. We have enough troubles, enough woes to contend with. Enemies all about us here and abroad who would like to see this colony destroyed. The Indians, the Virginia colonists, the bishops in England. We can't afford the chaos of democracy which brings disunity. The pressing problems before us need strong rule and a firm hand. Well, Governor Winthrop, the colony is only seven years old, and it seems rather strange that so young a colony should pass only recently an Alien Exclusion Act. Strange, sir? We would be remiss in our duty if we failed to keep out any undesirable aliens who may think they can settle here and destroy our institutions with their false heresies. Thank you, Governor Winthrop. Ken Roberts, outside this meeting house, reports that Mistress Hutchinson is crossing the river and she should be arriving soon. He also tells us that Captain Underhill, the military leader of the Bay Colony, has arrived and has agreed to an interview. So we take you outside the meeting house over to Ken Roberts. Captain Underhill is at my side. He is a man who has proved his military leadership in the recent war against the Pequot Indians. The captain is an English peer. He seems somewhat out of place among these austere, somber Puritans. He is, and I know he will appreciate this, the perfect picture of an English gallant with flowing hair, ruffs, and courtly air. Captain Underhill, I understand, sir, that you, you are a supporter of Anne Hutchinson. 
how is it that you, a gentleman, a member, I might say, of the upper level of society here in the colony, how is it that you are a member of her party? No, sir, is not Sweet Anne likewise a gentlewoman, a member of the gentry? Oh, is that why you're for her? Ah, no, sir. I am for her, for she has a most unforgivable quality. Yet strange to tell it is the quality that I admire most in her. What quality is that, Captain? Why, the quality of being a gentlewoman who dares to behave like a woman. Most unforgivable, to be sure, in certain quarters. Uh, I understand that you attend her meeting. Aye, and it pleasureth me greatly to listen to her keen intellect. Far greater indeed than it does listening to our learned ministers who may be fuller of the scriptures. Uh, the elders claim that her mixed meetings are immoral and indecent. That she preaches a belief in free love. Oh, yes. The dear woman has often said that we are bound in one family of love. The elders would have it that by this innocent Christian sentiment, she means that all women should be held as common property. Most amusing logic. What? <laughs> Captain, do you think Anne Hutchinson will be banished? Mayhap tis in the minds of the elders. But if I know Anne Hutchinson, the elders may meet their match at the trial. Nevertheless, they may dare to banish her. They may dare. Captain Underhill, as I look about me at the brethren assembled here, I, I notice that most of them are armed. I've also heard considerable talk, rather dire predictions of what might happen if Mistress Anne were banished. Do, uh, do you think there might be an attempt to overthrow the government if she is banished? Perhaps, sir, it is best that our elders consider that as a distinct possibility. More than that, I care not to say. Well, uh, is it true, Captain, that the people are looking to you for leadership if, if it comes to, well, action? My heart, sir, is servant to Mistress Anne. As for my sword, she has but to command it. Well, if there is an uprising, do you think... Oh, excuse me, Captain. A, a man has just mounted the steps of the meeting house and is addressing the crowd. We have a microphone there. We're, we're going to open it and let you hear the speaker, whom I recognize as preacher John Wheelwright, Anne Hutchinson's brother-in-law. He was tried last week by the general court, found guilty of sedition, unfrocked, and sentenced to banishment from the colony in two weeks. While he remained, he was ordered to be silent. Well, evidently, he doesn't mean to be silent. Let's, let's hear what he's saying. This false pretense of a trial. Are not their thoughts sealed against her? Mean they not to drive her from their midst, come what may? But take heed, ye hireling priests and elders of New England. I hold a glass of your feet. The door of you the meeting house has been thrown open. Governor Winthrop and his guard of halberdiers are standing on the steps. Preacher Wilright has seen the governor. He is pointing a finger directly at the governor. Never, for these never pretended themselves to be Christians. And yet wherein do ye differ from these? With your whips, your stocks, your branding irons. I warn you, there'll be scores of valiant men of Israel, and everyone has a sword in his hand, and is ready to do battle for the righteous. Yet we must, all of us, prepare for battle, and come out against the enemies of the Lord. Preacher Wilright is couching his meaning in the language of the Old Testament, but in the opinion of this reporter, he's calling for violent opposition, if not outright insurrection against Governor Winthrop. The governor has motioned his albedoes forward. They moved forward towards Wilright. They've seized him and silenced him. Now the governor has moved forward. He is speaking to Preacher Wilright. I'd be more tender with you. Because of our respect for our former servant of God, we were merciful. Gave you a fortnight to be gone. Ye have thought fit to revive us. Therefore, we order you 
Because the deacon left, we cast you out as we would a leper. Remove him from the boundaries of the commonwealth. Oh, what do you say? Then will be a leper and deny the truth of Christ. It will be a part of your hands. I will be fine. The are leading preacher will right away. The people are muttering stubbornly. They're fingering their firearms and gripping their swords. Deputy Governor Dudley is calling for silence. He, he holds a paper in his hand. The Deputy Governor is reading an announcement. Seduced and led into dangerous errors many of the people here in New England. And inasmuch as there is just suspicion that they may make some sudden eruption, for prevention whereof it is ordered that all those assembled here shall give up all such guns, missiles, swords, powder, shot, and match as they shall be owners of or have in their custody. And neither shall they borrow or buy any of the mentioned arms until we shall give further orders therein. By order of His Excellency, Governor John Winston. The crowd is reacting angrily to the order. It looks like they mean to resist any attempt to relieve them of their weapons. The halberdiers have moved forward towards Captain Underhill. The captain has drawn his sword. Anne Hutchinson has called out to Captain Underhill. That was the voice of Anne Hutchinson. She came up unnoticed, and the crowd has seen her now and suddenly fallen silent. Anne Hutchinson is speaking. If you hold me dear as a friend, let there be no violence on my behalf. I pray you, give up your sword. I beg of you, Captain Underhill, give up your sword. No man shall strip me of my sword while I can draw breath to use it. But to you, dear lady, I resign it. The captain has extended his sword hilt first into the outstretched hand of Mr. Hutchinson. The crowd is protesting angrily at things they wanted to resist. And Hutchinson again. She has gone inside into the meeting house. The halberdiers are moving among the people, gathering up their weapons. The crowd is offering no resistance. Governor Winthrop has gone inside. It, it looks as if the trial is about to begin, so back to Don Hollenbeck inside the meeting house. Mistress Anne Hutchinson, accompanied by her husband, has come down the aisle in front of Governor Winthrop's table. Behind the governor's table, the magistrates are taking their places again, and so are all the brethren in the meeting house. They gathered round the door to watch the action outside. The governor himself has now come in and taken his place. He's talking to the magistrates. Anne Hutchinson is waiting, sitting alongside her husband. William Hutchinson is not prominent in the public eye. He appears to be quite content to remain in the shadow of his remarkable wife, to whom he seems extremely devoted, quite willing to follow wherever her conscience may lead. By asking her supporters outside to give up their arms and not resort to violence in her behalf, Anne Hutchinson has thus deprived herself of any force of appeal from the decision of this very unfriendly court and its very hostile spectators. She is willing to stand and be judged in her, by her own beliefs. But in the opinion of many who know the lady well, she'll give a good account of herself the court will be up against the most brilliant logician in the colony, 
Anne Hutchinson is a woman with a prodigious memory of Bible text and a sharp and sometimes unscrupulous wit. We mustn't forget that she's a daughter of Francis Marbury, who, before he died, was recognized as one of the most profound scholars in the English church. And like his daughter, Francis Marbury got into difficulties with his superiors in old England because of his independent attitude and his outspoken criticism of the church hierarchy. He even spent a year in jail. Now it seems that his daughter Anne, inspired by her admiration for her father, means to follow in his path of defiance of vested authority. Governor Winthrop has turned to the court. He's motioned Anne Hutchinson to rise. She'll not be permitted to sit during this trial. Governor Winthrop is speaking. The trial has begun. You have meetings at your house that have been forbidden and condemned by the General Assembly. You have continued to hold these meetings, openly harboring individuals that have been convicted by this court of sedition. We have summoned you here to entreat you to desist and thereby save and rescue yourself and become a profitable member among us. Or, if you be obstinate, we shall take such action that you may trouble us no longer. Your fate stands on your own judgment, Mistress Hutchison. Speak. I see not in my meetings in which I have transgressed against God's law. By what authority or rule do you forbid it? If you show it me, I will yield. But give me a rule. Nay, ye must show us a rule. Very well, then. I give you a rule. Titus 2, where the elder women are to teach the younger. Mistress Hutchison, we are all aware of your prodigious knowledge of the Bible and how you can use it to confound and confuse the godly. The apostle you quote gives no warrant for set meetings. And besides... You take it upon yourself to teach many that are older than yourself. And neither do you teach what the apostle commands. Namely, to keep at home. I to keep at home. And not urge the women out of their houses. Fill them with idle thoughts. So their husbands can no longer control them. Ye still have not given me a rule against it. You must have a rule for it. Or else you cannot do it. You think it not lawful for me to teach women. Yet you call upon me to teach the court. Mistress Hutchison, your court is not to be suffered. You show naught but contempt for the court. We ask you again, by what rule do you hold these meetings? I have given you my authority from the Bible, sir. The rule does not suit your practice. What will you have? My name written upon it. Your meetings, Mistress Hutchison, are of another nature. Sixty misguided souls gathering together, men and women, both freely mingling in unseemly manner. I would like answer. By what authority or rule do you uphold that? I pray, sir, what authority or rule forbids that? We are not the judges. We are the judges, not you. It behooves us to ask the question. Aye, judges and prosecutors both. What manner of justice is that? We do not mean to bandy words with one of your sex. If you do not abandon your meetings, then it behooves us to compel you to do so. Are ye not then abandoning the Bible and invoking civil authority, sir? Aye, you ministers of God. How many of you were silenced in a similar manner by the High Commission in old England? Doth it not seem grotesquely familiar to your ears? Or have you forgotten that these were the self-same words that Bishop Lord thundered at you when he drove you to these shores. Your Excellency. Yes, Mr. Wilson. We are getting nowhere, Your Excellency. I would go to the fire with Mr. Hutchinson. 
three years ago, we were all at peace. Mrs. Hutchinson, from the time she came, has made a disturbance. And now she has a potent party in the country that threatens the very life of the government. Or if she is permitted to mingle freely among the people, spreading her heresies and sedition, woe and desolation shall descend upon the heads of all of us. She must be silent. My thoughts shall never be silent. They are a matter of conscience. Then you must control your conscience, or there shall be those who will control it for you. Dear God in heaven, have we come this far to hear that? There shall be those to control it for you. Things like that have been said in Spain by a man named Torquemada. In those words, I can hear the grinding of the rack, the creak of the spiked nathan, the hiss and crackle of flames, the agonized voice of screaming, praying, human torches. You are to such charges. Your tongue is nimble enough. If you cannot respect your elders, then you must learn to fear them. Fear! The bounds of my habitation are cast in heaven. I fear none but the great Jehovah, who I do verily believe will deliver me out of your hands. Take heed! Take heed how you proceed against me. For what you go about to do to me, God will ruin you and your posterity and this whole state. All the spectators are outraged by Anderson's attack on them. They're standing howling abuse and angry words at her head, Governor Winthrop again. It is a special providence of God to hear what she hath said. For God hath delivered her into our hands. We have been hearkening about this or that at the trial, and now the mercy of God by a providence hath answered our desires and made her lay open herself. By this her heat and vanity of spirit hath she abused the country and laid the ground for all these tumults and troubles that have plagued us since she came here. I move that she be cut off from this forever. <laughs> the sentence of this court that you hear is that you be banished from out of our jurisdiction and imprisoned until the court shall see fit to set you free. Better to be banished into the wilderness than to deny my savior. <laughs> Mistress Hutchinson has turned. Her husband has come to her side. Two halberdiers approach them. The spectators are hurling imprecations at her, calling her the Jezebel. Governor Wendt. November 7, 1637. Anne Hutchinson is banished by the Puritans, but her struggle for freedom of conscience goes on. You have been listening to The Trial of Anne Hutchinson, another broadcast in the series You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Sheehan. The Trial of Anne Hutchinson was written by Henry Walsh and Mr. Sheehan. Anne Seymour played Anne Hutchinson, Malcolm Keene was Governor Winthrop, and the cast included Richard Gordon, Peter Boyne, Eileen Benson, John Merlin, Court Benson, Bert Cowlin, Guy Sorrell, and others. Next week... July 21st, 1861... The first battle of Bull Run. You are there. You are there was on at a new time today, and that's where we'll be on the following Sunday. Columbia's great Sunday afternoon lineup also changes today with the addition of two new shows. New fun with Robert Q. Lewis, new thrills with Philip Marlowe, later today over most of these CBS stations. Consult your local newspaper for the time. 
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The trial of Anne Hutchinson, as reported, I guess you'd say, by the CBS News team as part of the series You Are There from the first week of autumn in 1948. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The field of detective fiction is tremendously diverse. There are noir detective shows, comedy detective shows, true crime detective shows, buddy detective shows, and on and on. One of the hardiest varieties of characters is the gentleman detective, urbane, witty, striking, often British, etc., but always ready for action. Think of the saint, the thin man, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, and, of course, the king of them all, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Many of these sleuths appeared in radio series during the Golden Age, most of them based on those earlier literary works. One of them that was original to radio, however, even though it borrowed heavily from the earlier Bulldog Drummond series, was The Private Files of Rex Saunders. It used the fine acting talents and the British accent of Rex Harrison, who was still five years away from making Broadway history as Professor Higgins in the original cast of My Fair Lady. Mr. Harrison was born on this date, March 5th, in 1908. We'd love to present more episodes of this intricately plotted series. Please do pay attention or you may get lost. But alas, the audio quality leaves a lot to be desired. Here's one of the better sounding episodes from May 30th, 1951. It comes from NBC and The Private Files of Rex Saunders. Rex Harrison stars in another intriguing adventure transcribed from the private files of Rex Saunders. Concerning Blackmail dangerous game which either pays off in high dividends or shallow grave. And now, the private files of Rex Sunder. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music and first in television brings you the celebrated star of stage and screen, Rex Harrison, in another exciting story taken from the private files of Rex Saunders, radio's newest man of mystery. We hope you enjoy these weekly stories of intrigue and adventure, and for another adventure in home entertainment, we suggest you try RCA Victor's fine line of radio and television products, now on display at your RCA Victor dealer. Now for our story. dignified man in the pinstripe suit gets off the rickety elevator at the sixth floor, stops to take a cigarette out of the silver case, watches the ancient elevator slowly descend in its iron prison, then crushes the cigarette between his fingers and walks quickly down the dim-lit hotel corridor. 
dignified man in the pinstripe suit stops before room 617. Casts a quick glance back along the corridor, then knocks on the door. Telegram, ma'am. Yes, what? No, Linda. You. Mind if I come in? No, you can't come in here. <coughs> Sorry, Miss Farrell. Get your hands off of me. I won't take up much of your time. Get out of here. After I'm finished. Now look, Mr. Goodrich. I'm tired of having you follow me around. I know you've been trailing me all day. If you don't cut it out, I'm going to call the police. Call the police? Sure. Go ahead, Linda. There's the phone. Call them. Why don't you let me alone? What do you want from me? Stop the act. You know what I want. Where is my nephew? I don't know. Where is Eddie? I haven't seen Eddie in weeks. You're a liar. What happened to my nephew? You're barking up the wrong tree, Mr. Goodrich. You're not going to find Eddie this way. All right. But I know someone who will find him for me. Yes. Who? Someone who will get to the bottom of this. Someone who will get the truth out of you. Rex Saunders. I'm frightened to death. Now get out of here. You're wasting my time. I'll get out. After I see what's in the next room there. You're staying away from this door. He's in that room, isn't he? I said you're not going in the next room. You're staying out of there. Not on your life. All right, then, on yours, Mr. Goodrich. Put that gun down. One more step toward this door and I fire. You wouldn't dare. No? Just try it, Mr. Goodrich. One more step. And you'll never see Eddie again. You stupid little fool. You didn't shoot, did you? No, Eddie. I just scared him off. But you'd better lay low. What's this about Saunders? The old man's going to call him in on it. Okay, Linda. Don't you worry about Saunders. He won't be on this case long. You're home. What's the matter with the lights? They're off. Yes, obviously. But what happened? Well, they're, uh, they're supposed to be that way. What are you talking about? It was like this when I came home an hour ago. And you've been here in the dark? Uh-huh. Sitting right here. But not alone. Hmm? We have a visitor. Right behind you, Saunders. What is this? And it's not a cap pistol you feel against your back. That's how it is. Alex, could you tell the gentleman we don't usually entertain guests in the dark? This party's on me. I like it this way. And to what do we owe the pleasure of your visit? Get off the Goodrich case. Goodrich case? That's right. Stop looking for Eddie Goodrich. I don't want you to find him. Do you understand? 
Well, frankly, no. You see, I've never heard of your Eddie Goodrich. I'm not here to play games, Saunders. Believe me, I, I haven't been looking for Mr. Goodrich. That's what I've been telling him. Now, look, Saunders, you get off this case and get off it fast if you know what's good for you. I usually don't. Now, you'd better this time, because I got a shell in this gun with your initials on it. So you just be smart. Oh! oh. I'm sorry. What's the idea of that? Just a deep scratch on the hand... I wanted something to recognize you by, since I haven't had the privilege of seeing your face. Perhaps the next time we meet... Get this through your head and keep it there. The next time we meet, Saunders, it'll be at a funeral. Yours. Remember that. Hmm. Nice fellow. You must have him over again sometime. I wish you'd tell me what this was all about. I wasn't aware that you were on a new case. Neither was I. Then, then you know nothing about this Goodrich person? Absolutely nothing. But now my curiosity is aroused. I know what that means. Here we go again. That's what it means. But first, let me see if I can do something about lifting the blackout in here. No. The phone again. I'll get it. It rang several times, but our uninvited guest wouldn't let me answer it. Hello. Nick Saunders? Yes? I'd like to call on you tomorrow. Will you be at home? Well, that all depends. It's very important. I need your help. Who is this? Uh, what do you want me to do? My name is Mark Goodrich. I want you to find out what's happened to my nephew, Eddie. <laughs> Mr. Saunders, that's how it's been with my nephew for years. He goes with the wrong people. He's constantly in jams. Mm -hmm. He's embarrassed me socially and in business. And now this has happened to top everything else off. And uh, what jam is Eddie in at present, Mr. Goodrich? Oh, I suppose I'm an old fool. I took an oath I'd never help him again. He's tricked money out of me so many times in the past. Now, this seems to be a serious matter. Here. Here, this telegram. I received it last night. Need 3,000 immediately to pay off debt. Wire money to me, 786 West 48th Street, apartment 4A. Important you don't bring it yourself, Eddie. Well, Mr. Goodrich, this seems to be only a monetary affair. Not now, Mr. Saunders. Now it's a matter of life or death. What do you mean? The deadline's at five o'clock. Two hours from now. What deadline? What are you talking about? I got a phone call just before you arrived. It was a man. He said if the money wasn't delivered by five o'clock, Eddie would be killed. the apartment at the end of the hall, Alec. Maybe we shouldn't have come here. Eddie warned his uncle in the telegram to wire the money. Nevertheless, I'm making this transaction COD. 
Now, here we are. Yes, what is it? I'd like to speak to Eddie Goodrich. Sorry, mister, he doesn't live here. I didn't say he lived here. I said I wanted to see him. You got the wrong apartment. We have a telegram that says this is the right apartment. Just a minute. Get your foot out of the door. Don't you know, Mrs. Rude, to cut off conversation so abruptly? Look, copper, you get in here only on a warrant. So you just go back to headquarters and come back with a signed pass. The young lady seems to misunderstand, Alec. Apparently. She thinks we're from the police. No. The ASPCA. Please convey to Mr. Goodrich that we are merely messengers of good tidings. $3,000 worth in this envelope. Oh, come in. All right. Give me the money. Well, believe me, Miss, uh... What did you say your name was? The money. Oh, that's right. Yes, you didn't say. Now, about this money, I'm expected to get a receipt in return for it. So I'll give you a receipt. The young lady continues to misunderstand, Alec. Dreadfully so. The receipt I have in mind is Eddie Goodrich in person. Don't worry. I'll see that he gets the money. But I, I do worry. It's my nature. I insist upon handing this over to Eddie Goodrich personally. <sighs> all right, all right. I'll get him. Eddie? Yes? Someone's here with the money. He won't give it to anybody but you. Okay. All right, messenger boy. Here he is. Well, it took the old man long enough to get it here. Well, you satisfied? Mm-hmm. Your uncle's been worried about you, Eddie. Uh, so he's been worried. So what? Give me the money. The money? Oh, oh, yes. Uh, here. Uh, 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 what? What do you think? Uh, it won't take a moment. Uh, thanks very much. What was that supposed to be? I was just interested in your teeth. He's given us some kind of business, Eddie. I'll bet he hasn't got the money. That's right. I haven't got the money. Why, you... And he's not Eddie Goodrich. What do you mean I'm not Eddie Goodrich? You're an imposter. I haven't a photograph of Eddie, so I went to the trouble of checking with his dentist. Goodrich has two upper front teeth on a detachable bridge. Unfortunately, yours are quite solidly your own. Now then, I want the answer to two questions. What game are you two playing, and where's Eddie Goodrich? All right, here's our answer. This. Look out, she's got a gun. If either one of you moves, I'll kill you. Now get in the next room. I prefer it here. I said start moving or I shoot. What, with the safety catch on? <coughs> Go! I'm sorry, but little girl shouldn't play with gun. My wrist! Uh, there. This plaything is much safer in my hand. Linda, you stupid... Shut up, Sid. Linda and Sid. Cute couple, don't you think, Alec? Charming. I knew this gag would get us into a jam. What gag? Nothing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't, Shut huh? up, you fool. Well, I got it, Linda. Maybe if we open up... They then... haven't got anything on us. No? What about this automatic of yours, Linda? I've got a license to carry it. Do you have a license to practice extortion, too? You'll have to prove that. We'll prove it, all right. It'll take time. You, um, you want to find Eddie Goodrich in a hurry, don't you? I believe I detect a bargain in the offing. You guessed it. The terms? You forget about us if I tell you where Eddie is. Well. All right. Now, first, uh, where do you two fit in? We're friends of Eddie's. Friends? Yes. Well, go ahead. Eddie owes 3000 to Nick Gasco. The money was supposed to come here to Sid's apartment. I sent that wire for Eddie, and I was to pick up the money and deliver it. Where? To Nick Gasco. He's got a joint up on 98th Street behind a candy store. If you want to find Eddie, ask Nick Gasco. Nick's keeping Eddie undercover till the money comes across. Do you have everything straight, Alex? Yes, I'm to keep a watch on this house. 
If Linda and Sid leave, I'm to follow them wherever they go. Mm -hmm. And I'll be back just as soon as I hear what Nick Gasco has to say. Well, Nick, what have you got to say to that? Linda's a liar. She's a lousy little liar. She's playing her own game. Eddie Goodrich owes you uh, 3000 doesn't he? Sure. Sure he owes me three Gs. He's owed me more than that. But he's good for it. He pumps it out of the old man like water. Eddie's okay in a cup any time. When did you see Eddie last? Day before yesterday, when he dropped the three Gs here. Was he alone? You crazy? Alone? That girl Linda was with him. She's always with him. So is her boyfriend, Sid. They live all Eddie's dough. Where do you think uh, Eddie might be now? Come on with me. I know where he is. Where are you taking me? Right back to Sid's apartment. <laughs> in our room, Saunders. Looks like they cleared out in a hurry. I thought we'd find them gone, Nick. What do you mean? Alec wasn't in front of the building when we arrived. He's telling them? Yep. Well, leave it to that Linda dame. She's a smart cookie. She'll give him the slip. Pardon me. What are you going to do? Have a look through these uh, closets. You might check the one in the other room. Ah, you're wasting your time. You won't find anything here. Blow. Told you that dame is too smart to leave a trail behind her. Evidently you've overrated, Linda. Yeah? Why? Look here in this closet. She left quite a monument. Huh. Stiff. I know Sid would end up getting it. It's not Sid. This scratch on the right hand. My mysterious guest was right. He predicted our next meeting would be at a funeral. Here. Help me turn him here. over on his back. Saunders! What is it, Nick? This stiff. He, he's had a good reach. How much longer are we going to sit here, Saunders? Why don't you do something? Call a kind or something. Well, there'll be time for that, Nick. Gives me the creeps you're sitting here looking at a stiff. Look, suppose I see you later. Suppose I get a little air. Honest, this makes you kind of sick. I'm sorry, Nick, but I'm going to need you around for a while. Oh, look, Saunders, you don't think I had anything to do with this, do you? I brought you here, didn't I? You did. But I wouldn't do that if I was in on the job, would I? I just want you around for help, Nick, that's all. You wouldn't kid me, would you? I told you that Eddie and I were friends, didn't I? We were good friends. I let him go on a cup of three G's, just like I told you. You can ask anybody. Nick Gasker don't do business like it was done to Eddie there. Ah, take it easy. I think that's the call I was expecting. Hello? Salic, Rex. I thought I'd still get you there. Linda and Sid left the house about 15 minutes after you went uptown. They had two valises with them. Where did they go? I don't know. What do you mean? What happened? I followed their car up 9th Avenue and then across town on 59th Street. They made a quick turn in the Central Park and then I... I lost them. I'm sorry. It seems that Nick was right about Linda. You better come back. We still have some business to settle here in Sid's apartment. What kind of business? A matter between Nick Gasco and a corpse. Nick's here with me and... So is Eddie Goodrich's corpse. What? And despite his fervent avowals of friendship for Eddie, I have an idea that Nick isn't telling all he knows. Oh. Rex, what happened? Rex! 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 <laughs> 
Sid, turn the car around. What? Take the East River Drive. We're going back downtown. What's the matter, Linda? You crazy? No, I'm not crazy. The idea just struck me. What idea? What are you talking about? Old man Goodrich is going to be good for some spending money before we clear out permanently. I'm going back to hit him for it. Yeah, but Eddie's dead. So what? The old man doesn't know it. And they find him in the closet. We're finished. Don't be a sap. They won't look there so fast. Just give me ten minutes with old man Goodrich and you and I are going to be 2,000 richer. So go ahead, do what I told you. Turn the car around. It'll cost you 2000 Mr. Goodrich. And you'd have Eddie back here in four hours, Linda? In four hours, like I said. But uh, first, one thing. Yes? You don't tell anybody about this deal. You keep Saunders off and keep the police off. Do you understand that? I understand. If you try any double crosses, I warn you, you won't have Eddie back here soon. Maybe never. All right. Anything you say. Now, let me have the money. But how do I know you'll keep your end of the bargain? You take that chance if you want Eddie. I'll be right back. Hey, wait a minute. Yes? Where are you going? The money's in a safe in the next room. I'll go with you. All right. Come on. This way, Miss Farrell. Yes, Linda, come what? right in. You... Miss Farrell seems surprised to find us here. And yet, Alec, I expected her arrival. Now you have her, Mr. Saunders, a rotten little murderess. Stand back, all of you. Another gun? Miss Farrell, is that a pocketbook you carry or an arsenal? The safety catch is off this time. So I noticed. You're not getting away this time. You may as well put that gun down. Oh, no, no. You're not going to get me for a murder I didn't commit. I didn't kill Eddie. You'll have your chance to prove that in court. A fat chance he'll give me. That isn't the chance you gave Eddie. I didn't kill him, and you're not going to take me in. You just stay where you are, all of you. I'm going out of that door, and I fire at the first one who makes a move before I close it. And don't try to follow me, I warn you. Stay here, Mr. Goodrich. Come on, Alec. Right with you. There she is, getting into that car across the street. Hurry, before she gets away from us. She's pulling out. We'd better get into our car. Wait, Alec, look. Wait, her car is swinging around. She's going up on the sidewalk. And straight for that store This car door. Yes, Rex. Jam, but I think uh, I think we can uh, a little more. Uh, that's enough. There we are. Apparently, this crash wasn't so fatal as it looked. She's alive. Yes. So are the other two. The other two. Yes, Sid and Nick Gasco. Nick Gasco. What was he doing in the car? Uh, Nick seems the worst off of the three. He's under the wheel. We better get him out first. Yeah. I'll get him under the arms. You take the legs. Yeah. Yeah, I have him. I got him. All right, lift him slowly. Watch your step. Watch your step in the rubble. We'll put him down here in front of the car. Lift him down carefully. Yes, Rex. All right, that's that's fine. So now, what about the others? Now, call police emergency. I'll look after Nick a while. He's pretty badly cut up. 
grabbed the wheel from Sid. Try to stop Getaway. One of them for you for payoff. Honest. I'm dealing from the top of the deck. Don't try and say any more, Nick. You're, you're going to need a great deal of strength later on to talk about a great many things. <laughs> says I was out of the picture three days. Yes. I want to have that talk. So do I, Nick. What about Linda and Sid? They're down the hall in their rooms. They're able to get around, but not far. Well, you want to watch her, Linda. She's a tricky dame. Mm. Well, about that talk, Nick. Oh, yeah, but first I want to apologize for conking you on the head. The way it looked to me, you had me tagged as the number one boy, so I had to get off the spot fast. I could be here for the payoff. And just what is the payoff? How Eddie milked old man Goodrich? How the dog came to Eddie fast and easy? And how Goodrich figured the kiss off? Eddie had something on him and it was nothing Goodrich. Down, Nick. The fire skipper. Did you see him? Yes, Nick. I saw him. I had a feeling Goodrich would be here for the payoff. Would have laid odds on it. But I figured it only an even money bet who'd get to me first. You or him. Well, Nick, frankly, you had a little edge, to be exact, uh, 30 to 1 against the killer. I don't get you. From the time you entered the hospital, Alec has been in that apartment house across the street with a 30 caliber rifle trained on this room. Well, that's the way it was, Alec. Eddie knew that his uncle had been mixed up in several shady business deals, and, uh, with that information, he bled money from Goodrich year after year. And Goodrich decided he had to end the blackmail sometime, and the opportunity presented itself when he found Eddie alone in Sid's apartment. Eddie was already murdered when I went to see Goodrich Tuesday afternoon. But why did he let us in on the case? Probably because he thought it would furnish him with a perfect alibi. But what about Linda and Sid? They knew Eddie's body was in that closet. Linda and Sid are explaining that to the district attorney now. They knew about Eddie's telegram asking for money, so they seized upon the situation for some quick and easy dollars. But as Nick Gasco would say, Alec, I lay odds the district attorney will prove to them that quick and easy dollars pay off the hard way. Rex Harrison will return to tell you about next week's stories. And now, here is Rex Harrison, internationally famous star of stage and screen to tell you about next week's adventure, transcribed from the private files of Rex Saunders. Next week, it's concerning fortune-telling. Concerning fortune-telling. 
The lines in the palm of the victim's hands are never as accurate as the plan in the killer's mind. You have been listening to another intriguing adventure transcribed from the private files of Rex Saunders, written by Ed Adamson. In the cast were Leon Janney as Alec and Amsie Strickland as Linda. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is Kenneth Banghart speaking for RCA Victor. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Rex Harrison in The Private Files of Rex Saunders from the spring of 1951. Rex Harrison, who was born 115 years ago today, passed away in 1990. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. In the late 19th century, the feminist movement was largely channeled into the fight for women's suffrage in the United States and Europe, but there were voices urging deeper changes, social and domestic changes, and a recognition that those changes were already underway. Some of those expressions naturally came from activists like Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Emma Goldman. Even earlier, though, in the 1870s, the so-called New Woman, characters seeking to control their own lives, appeared in the works of such artists as the American novelist Henry James and, most famously, the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen. James's Daisy Miller and Ibsen's A Doll's House appeared within a year of each other in 1878 and 79. If the pages that have been written about Ibsen's women characters were laid end-to-end, they'd probably stretch from here to the moon. We're just going to leave it with our having mentioned The New Woman and close this hour with a listen to one of the most complex of all of Henrik Ibsen's protagonists. It's the NBC University Theatre's production of Hedda Gabler. The adaptation is by a woman, Clarice, or Clarice Ross, and in the title role is an actor who flourished in the later years of radio's golden age, Virginia Christine. She went on to appear in dozens of episodes of such shows as Gunsmoke, Suspense, and Have Gun Will Travel. Fifty years ago, she was everywhere on television as Mrs. Olson, the Folgers Coffee Woman. And, by coincidence, this Women's History Month, tonight would have marked her 103rd birthday. From August 27, 1950, it's Virginia Christine as Henrik Ibsen's tragic Hedda Gobbler from the NBC University Theater. This is the NBC Theater. From the NBC Theater in Hollywood, an hour-length version of a great four-act play. Henrik Ibsen's Dark Study of a Tempestuous Woman. Hedda Gabler. The adaptation for radio is by Clarice A. Ross of NBC. Hear it now. The 
The house was quite large, and by the standards of the middle of the last century when it was built, most elegant. Within, the drawing room was spacious, handsome, and tastefully furnished. But the morning sun coming through the glass garden doors showed a room inhabited but not yet lived in. As though the room and the house waited for what the lives of the people in it would do to give it its own life. In the room, a pleasant-faced elderly lady also waited. Oh, Julia. Dear Aunt oh, Julia. Oh, George, dear. Good morning. Oh, you've come all this way to see us so early in the morning. Oh, well, we didn't really have a chance to talk, George, with the boat getting in so late last yes, night. Yes. sit down then, and we'll have a good chat until later comes. Oh, George, let me look at you. <sighs> Just think of you, a married man. And that you should be the one to carry off the beautiful Hedda Gabler when she had so many admirers. <laughs> I can hardly believe it yet myself, Aunt Julia. And then this wonderful wedding trip, nearly six months. George, dear, have you anything to tell me? Hmm? Oh, about our journey? Yes, you know, dear. Uh, well, I, I had a doctor's degree conferred on me for my historical work, but I wrote you about that. I mean, George, have you any expectations? I'm your old aunt, dear. You can tell me. Why, why, of course I have. Ah. I expect to be made a professor one of these days. Oh, George. What about your journey, dear? Tell me, it must have cost a great deal of money. Oh, yes, I, I suppose it did. But I had my traveling scholarship, you know. And besides, Hedda had to have this trip. She simply had to. Yes, I suppose she did. Uh, what do you think of the house, dear? The furniture and the carpets I bought. Oh, I'm delighted with it all, Aunt Julia. Uh, but there are two empty rooms next to Hedda's bedroom. And whatever are we to do with them? Oh, George. I dare say you may find some use for them in the course of time. Oh, of course. You mean as my library increases, eh? Uh, quite so, my boy. Yes. Well, you know, I'm so happy about this house on Hedda's account. Before we were engaged, she always said she would never want to live anywhere but in Secretary Fox Villa. And now you have it. But you'll find it very expensive, I'm afraid. Yes, yes, I suppose I shall. But when I get my professorship, it will surely take care of everything. Oh, yes, surely it will. And to think, George, there's no one left to oppose you. Yes. You have no rivals. And your most dangerous rival. Oh, he's made a ruin of his life, the poor creature. Yes, yes. I meant to ask you. Has there been any news of Violet Loveborg? Since I went away, I mean. I heard he published a new book recently. Eh? Heaven knows what it can be worth. Now, when your book is published, George, that will be a different story. What will the title be? Domestic Industries of Brabant During the Middle Ages. Oh, imagine being able to write on such a thing. <laughs> oh, of course, there's a great deal of work to be done on it yet. But it will all go smoothly, now that I have my own beautiful home to work in. And the wife of your heart, my dear George. Oh, yes, Aunt Julia. Hedda, she is the best part of it all. Oh, but listen, I think she's coming now. Hedda? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Good morning, my dear Hedda. Good morning, Miss Tessman. How kind of you to call. Well, has the bride slept well in her new home? Oh, yes, thanks. Passably. Oh, passably, Hedda. You were sleeping like a stone when I got up. Auntie, look at Hedda. See how handsome she is. Tessman, please. Why, there's nothing new in that, George. Hedda was always lovely. Oh, yes, yes, but notice how she's uh, filled out during our journey. Oh, 
kneel down? That isn't true. I am exactly as I was. Oh, no, Hedda. I can see that you... You can see nothing. Be quiet. I am exactly as I was when I started. Hmm. So you say, but I am certain you are not. What do you think, Auntie? Well... Tessman, I will not be talked over like a horse. If you will excuse me, Miss Tessman, I must speak to the servant. Thank you so much for calling. I can't think why you were so short with Aunt Julia, Hedda. Is anything the matter with you? No, nothing. Tessman, I've been looking at my old piano. Eh? It doesn't go at all well with the other things in here. Well, then, we must exchange it. Oh, no, I don't want to part with it. Suppose we put it in the small parlor and buy another for this room. Buy another? Why, why, yes, of course we could do that. Good heavens, who could have sent that dreadful bouquet on the table? Eh? Oh, I was thinking they were rather pretty. Isn't there a card? Let me see. Oh, yes. It says, shall return later in the day. Well, it's signed Mrs. Elvstead. Is it really? Would that be Sheriff Elvstead's wife? Exactly. The girl with the irritating blonde hair that she was always showing off. Odd that she should call. I haven't seen her in years. Yes, do I. They live a long way out of town, don't they? Yes, ma'am. Isn't it somewhere near there that he... That Islet Loveborg is living. Yes, I believe it is. Excuse me, ma'am. Eh? Yes, Bertie, what is it? That lady, ma'am, who brought the flowers is here again. If she will show her in. That didn't take long. This way, please, ma'am. Mrs. Elvstead, it's delightful to see you again. Well, I, I didn't know. It, it's a long time since we met. Yes, it is. A very long time, Miss Rising. Uh, Mrs. Elvstead, Tessman. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for your lovely flowers, Mrs. Elvstead. Have you just come to town? Yesterday. I called at once. I was in despair when you weren't here. Despair? Oh, now, now, really. Are you in any trouble? Oh, yes. And I have no one to turn to. Oh, please, don't, don't misunderstand me. Oh, come now, sit down. Tell us the whole story. Well, you see, it... Well, perhaps you know... Islet Loveberg is in town, too. Loveberg? Fancy. He's been here a week. A whole week, all alone, with so many terrible temptations around him. Excuse me, Mrs. Elvstead, but how does Loveborg concern you so much? He... Why, he was the children's tutor. My husband's children. A tutor? Oh, excuse me, but was he... Well, was he regular enough in his habits? His conduct has been perfect for two years. Has it indeed? Fancy that, Hedda. I can hear, Tessman. But now, in this town, I'm so frightened for him. I'm told he published a new book. Yes, a wonderful book. The March of Civilization. And it sold so well and made such a sensation. That's why he's back here. Well, I'm very happy for love, Rob. You know, Mrs. Elvstead, it, uh, it seems a little odd of your husband to send you on such an errand. Why didn't he come and look after Loveborg himself? My husband... Well, he... You see, he had no time, and and then I had to do some shopping, and... I see. I came to ask, if Arlet comes to you, and he's sure to come, receive him kindly, please. He has no one. Promise me you'll look after him. Oh, it's the greatest of pleasure. You have my word. Oh, I can't thank you enough. I'm so frightened. Beg pardon, Mrs. Tesman. Judge Brock is here, ma'am. Oh, I'll go. I'll go right away. You'll do nothing of the sort. You sit quietly, dear. Tesman, go and receive Judge Brock in the inner parlor, won't you? Oh, of course, my dear. You have my word for love, Borg, Mrs. Elstead. 
Bertha, will you show Judge Brock into the small part of the Now. Now we can really talk. Oh, but I must go. Nonsense. You're going to tell me everything. Why, we were friends in school, dear. Were we? I was so afraid of you. Afraid? Oh, yes, you you always pulled my hair. Once you threatened to burn it off. <laughs> oh, that was childish nonsense. Now, listen, we're going to be good friends again. You must call me Hedda. Oh, you're so kind. I'm not used to such kindness. And I shall call you my dear Tora. My name is Taya. Uh, I, I mean Taya. But you say you're not used to kindness. Even in your own home. I have no home. You went to the Elsteads as governess, didn't you? Yes. His late wife was an invalid. Uh And then she died and you became mistress of the house. Yes. Five years ago. Oh, those five years. If only I could tell you. And Loveborg, you you saw a good deal of him. Yes. Every day. He came to give the children lessons, you see. So you said. But your husband, uh, is he not kind to you? Is he fond of you? I don't know. I think I'm just a useful property. And then it doesn't cost much to keep me. I'm not expensive. Oh, that's stupid of you. Well, he doesn't care for anyone, really. Perhaps the children. And I'll at Loveborg, Taya. He sent you to town to look for him, after all. No, he didn't. No. He doesn't even know I'm here. I simply left the house. <gasps> you dared? But what else could I do? But what will your husband say when you go home? I'm not going home. Ever. Taya, what will people say? What they wish. I did what I had to do. I have to live where Loveborg is, if I'm to live at all. My dear Taya, uh, how did this, this friendship between you and Loveborg come about? Well, you see, I gained a sort of influence over him. Indeed. Yes. He gave up his old habits. He saw that I hated them, and he dropped them. Then you have reclaimed him, as the saying goes, my little tale. Yes. Yes, that's just what he said. And he... Oh, Hedda, he taught me so much. He made me understand so many things. Oh, he gave you lessons, too? Oh, no, 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 not lessons. He talked to me about so many things. And then finally, the wonderful happy time came when I began to share in his work. I began to help him. Did you? He never wrote anything without my help. Oh, you were two good comrades, I see. Comrades. That's the very word he used. Oh, I should be so happy if only it would last. You're not quite sure of him, then. I wonder why. I will tell you. It's because of a woman. What woman? I don't know. Someone he knew in his past. Someone he's never been able to forget. And what has he told you about her, Taya? Nothing. Only once he said... He said what? He said that when they parted, she threatened to shoot him with a pistol. (laughs) Shoot shoot him with a pistol? Yes. Oh, Taya. Either you are inventing this nonsense or Loveborg was. No. My dear Taya, no one does that sort of thing. glad to hear that you had such a fine journey, Tessman. But now I'm afraid we must get down to business. Yes, I, I think I understand what you mean, Judge Pluck. The serious part of the frolic now, eh? 
Well, the money question's not too pressing. Why you had to live in a house in quite this much my style? Hedda, right, my dear fellow, I couldn't very well ask General Gabler's daughter to put up with anything shabby. Mm, perhaps not. And then I'll be getting my professorship very soon now. Yes, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Why? Have you heard anything definite? Mm, not exactly. By the way, Islet Loveborg is back in town. Yes, in quite a reformed character, I'm told. Published a new book and made a sensation. Quite a sensation. Well, I'm very happy for Loveborg. I thought he'd gone completely to ruin. Who has gone to ruin, Tessman? Eh? Ah, Mrs. Tessman. How delightful. Oh, where is Mrs. Elstead, my dear? She's just gone. Who has gone to ruin? We were discussing poor Eilert Lovebork, dear. Oh, indeed. What about him? And I was about to remark, even if this new book is as wonderful as they say, but how on earth is Eilert to make his living? I may have some information on that. Oh, indeed. My dear Tessman, I think I ought not to keep you in the dark. You must be prepared to find your appointment to the professorship deferred for a time. There is, I believe, to be a competition. Competition? But who is my competition? Well, surely not. Precisely. Eilert Loveborg. His book, you oh, But no. No, that's impossible. Oh, my dear judge, I'm a married man. Why, why we married on this prospect, Hedda and I, we were deep in debt. Why, they as good as promised it to me. Well, you'll no doubt get it in the end, but there will be a contest. Think of it, Tessman. There'll be a kind of sporting interest in that. Hedda, how can you be so indifferent? Oh, I'm not at all indifferent. I'm very curious to see who wins. I'm so, so glad to see you can take it in this way, Mrs. Tessman. Tessman, I'll be going. I'll stop back this afternoon to take you home to my party. The party? My little bachelor party. You promised on the pier last night, remember? Oh, I, I, I'd completely forgotten. I don't know, Judge. This news has upset me terribly. Show the judge to the door, Tessman. No, 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 no. Please don't bother. I shall return this afternoon, Tessman. Hedda, one should never rush into adventures, eh? Do you do that? To marry and set up house on mere expectations. Well, at least we have our home, Hedda. The home we both dreamed of, eh? You promised we would go into society, Tessman, and keep open house. Yes, yes, I was looking forward to it, seeing you as a brilliant hostess. Well, we'll have to get on without it, dear. And the man in livery I was to have? Oh, out of the question, of course. And the saddle horse? I suppose I mustn't think of that either. Oh, a saddle horse? Oh, good heavens, no. Well, I shall have one thing to kill time with, at least. Oh, thank heaven for that. What is it, Hedda, eh? My pistols, George. Pistols? General Gabler's pistols. If I can't do anything else, at least I can shoot. Look out, Judge Brock! Stop that! <laughs> well, you almost hit me. <laughs> That's what you get for, <laughs> for sneaking in the back way. So, you're here again, Judge. As you see... For heaven's mm. sakes, put away that pistol. Uh, where's Tesman? He went out. He won't be back for some time. Well, then I shan't be impatient. Come, my dear. Let us sit down and have a little chat, hmm? Oh, I've wished you home again. And I. Really? Mm. I thought you were enjoying your trip. Tesman's letters were full of nothing but happiness. Oh, Tesman. He was happy. He did nothing all day, every day, but grub among old... Old books and papers. On his special subjects, he was forever saying. You don't mean you were bored? Bored to death. 
specialist, my dear judge, and not at all amusing to travel with. Hmm? Not even the specialist one happens to uh, love. Love? Don't use that sickening word. Well, what are you saying, Miss Hedda? If you don't love Tesman, why on earth did you marry him? Oh, what's so wonderful about that? I had positively danced myself tired, my dear judge. And I don't see anything absolutely ridiculous about Tesman. Do you? Why, no, I shouldn't say so. Well, then, and since he was so bent on providing for me, why shouldn't I have accepted him? Well, if you look at it in that light. But uh, in this case, it would seem that perhaps you might feel the need of someone. Oh. As to that? A uh, trusted, sympathetic friend, perhaps. With a fund of conversation on all sorts of subjects. Yes. And not the least bit of a specialist. Yes. Yes, that would be a relief. Still, I... I should think you'd be happy with Tesman. Among other things, you have the home you set your heart on. <laughs> Do you believe in that fable, too? Fable? You mean you didn't want this house? Heaven knows I didn't. I hate the place. Once to make a conversation with Tesman, I happened to say I should like to live here. That was our bond of sympathy, Tesman's and mine. Out of that came our engagement, our marriage, our wedding trip, and all the rest of it. Me. Like this place. It smells of dried rose leaves. Well, perhaps, Miss Hedda, you'll feel differently in a little time. Why should I? Well, supposing that what people call in elegant language, a solemn responsibility were to come on you. A new responsibility, Miss Hedda. Be quiet. That will never happen. We'll speak of it again in a year, the very most. No, I tell you. The very idea is too disgusting. I tell you, it will never happen. Hedda! Hedda! Be quiet. Is your husband? Yes, my husband. The professor. Hedda! Oh, how do you do, Judge Bark? Tessman. Uh, Hedda, has any message come from my little love board? Not yet. Oh, he'll be here, I'm sure of it. I'd like to wait for him as long as possible, Judge. If it won't delay you for your party. No, not at all. I trust Loveborg will be my guest also. Or he could stay here with me. With you, Heather? Why, I say, would that be quite proper? Oh, Mrs. Elvstead is coming. We shan't be alone, Tessman. That would perhaps be best. Mrs. Tessman used to say of my bachelor parties that they were fit only for men of the strictest principles. <laughs> no doubt Loveborg's principles are strict enough now. What is it better? There's a Mr. Loveboard man inquiring if you are at home. Well, well, show him in. You were quite correct, it seems, Tessman. Fancy, to see Loveboard again, after all these years. This way, sir. Well, my dear Islet, so we meet again. Yes, Tessman. Will you two shake hands with me, Mrs. Tessman? I'm glad to see you, Mr. Loveboard. Do you know Judge Brock? Oh, yes, from the old days. Well, now, Violet, I want to tell you I've got hold of your new book, but I haven't had time to look into oh, it. You needn't bother. There's nothing in it. What's that? This is the real book. This bundle of papers here. This is the one you must read when it comes out. I, I brought it thinking I might read a bit of it to you this evening. Why, this evening? I, I don't see how I can manage. Uh, there's a small gathering at my house, Mr. Loveborg. I trust you'll join us. Thank you, Judge Brock. That will be impossible. Oh, but I beg of you. I'll even give you and Tesman a room where you can read to him. Uh, no, no, thank you. I'm sure Mr. Loveborg would rather remain here with me. Uh, besides, Mrs. Elvstead is coming. She'll have no one to see her home. Oh, in that case, Mrs. Tesman, many thanks. I will stay. <clears throat> uh, Islet, 
They uh, tell me you're going to lecture at the university this autumn. I hope you won't take it ill, Tessman. Well, I can hardly expect you to consider me. No, of course, I shall wait until you've received your appointment. Then, then you're not going to compete with me? Edna, do you hear? Edna is not going to stand in our way. Our way? Pray leave me out of it. Will you gentlemen take part? A fine idea. Come on, Brock. Either we'll go into the other part. No, thank you. Not for me. Hmm? Oh, why, bless me. Cold punch is not poison, you know. Not for some. Yes. Come on, Brock. Hedda, you keep out of company in the meantime. Do you care to look at some photographs, Mr. Loveball? Here is an album Tessman and I made on our wedding oh, trip. Please sit down here, Judge. Hedda Gobbler. Hush. Hedda Gobbler. That is not my name now. Hedda. Hedda, how could you throw yourself away? Hedda, my dear. And this is a view from the Val d'Ampezzo, Mr. Loveboard. Hedda, uh, shan't I bring you some punch, my dear? Uh, yes, dear, please do. Yeah. And a few biscuits, eh? These mountains are the Dolomites, Mr. Loveboard. Answer me, Hedda. How could you do this? You are not to call me Hedda. I see. It is an offense against Tespan, whom you love. I do not love him. But I won't hear of any unfaithfulness. Better answer me one question. There you are, my dear. But you have brought two glasses. Mr. Lovebog does not want any. No, but Mrs. Elmstead is coming. Oh, yes. Mrs. Elmstead. <laughs> there are some excellent photographs there, Eilert. Fancy, if only we could have had you with us, eh? Hedda, did you never love me? I wonder. We always seemed like two good comrades. How we used to sit and talk about so many things. Yes, just like this. Only in your father's parlor over an illustrated paper while he dozed by the fire. There was something beautiful in it to me. Something daring. That secret intimacy which no living creature dreamed of. And how you made me talk. The things you made me tell you, the questions you asked. Very roundabout questions, please remember. How could you question me like that? And how could you answer? You wanted to be my confessor. That was it, wasn't it? You thought you could purge my sins away. No. No, not quite. Well, what was it then? Does it seem so strange to you that a young girl, when it can be done without anyone knowing, well, should, should want to have a peep into a world which... She is forbidden to know anything about. Then why did our comradeship not continue? The fault was yours. It was you? You broke off with me? Yes, when our friendship threatened to develop into something more serious. Oh, shame on you, Eilat Loveborg. How could you think of wronging your... your frank comrade? Hedda. Oh. Hedda, why... Why didn't you carry out your threat? Why didn't you shoot I would have me? done so. Yes, you were afraid of the scandal... Hedda, you're a coward at heart. Yes, a terrible coward. But listen, Loveborg, I will confide something to you. Well? The fact that I dared not shoot you down, that that was not my worst cowardice that night. Hedda. Hedda, now, now I see, now I understand. You... Take care, you do not are... believe it. I'm married now, remember? I am so happy. I, I was hoping to find you here, Mr. Loveborg. Taya, my sweet Taya, you can't imagine how I've been longing for you. Come, sit by me. 
Oh, Hedda, I'm so happy to be here. This, Mrs. Tasman, this, this is my comrade. He has such faith in me. He is so brave. Oh, good heavens, am I brave? Very brave, <laughs> where your comrade is concerned. Ah, courage, if one only had that. Now, my dearest Taya, you will have a glass of punch. Oh, no, thank you. Then you, Mr. Laborg? No, thanks. But if I say you shall... It will be no use. Then I, poor thing, have no power over you at all. You know, of course, that people will be thinking you're afraid, that you're not quite sure of yourself. Oh, Hedda, please. Let them think it for the present. I saw Judge Brock's face when you dared not accept his invitation to the supper party. Hedda! Who says I dared not? I prefer to remain here. <laughs> but the judge didn't believe me. I that. care nothing for him. Of course he doesn't. Firm as a rock. And as faithful. There now, my little tear. What did I tell you when you came to us this morning in such a state of distraction? What? Distraction? Oh, Hedda, Hedda, be still. Now, you see, you had no reason to be in such mortal terror. Well, now, we can all three enjoy ourselves. Now, just a minute. What is all this? Hedda, what are you saying? What are you doing? So she was in mortal terror on my account. So that was my comrade's trust in me. Oh, my dearest friend, please, please. Well, the punch. Oh, here it is. Your health, Taya. Lovborg, no. Oh, Hedda, how could you do this? I, I do it. Are you crazy? It's to your health, too, Mrs. Tessman. Here's to the truth. <laughs> Hurrah for the truth. Come no more. Remember, you're going to the judges for supper. No, no, oh, love boy. And you have to read your manuscript to Tessman. You're right. Now, listen, Taylor. It was stupid of me, all this. Don't be angry with me. Dear comrade, you shall see. Everyone shall see. That if I was fallen once, I have risen again. Thanks to you, Taylor. Oh, heaven be praised. Well, ladies, my guests will be arriving at my house. Our time has come. Mine too, Judge Brock. Lovebog, don't do it. Be quiet. You were good enough to invite me, Judge? Oh, are you coming after all? I'm delighted. Hey, fancy, Islet. I'm quite looking forward to hearing you read that manuscript. Uh, but, Hedda, how is Mrs. Elfstead to get home tonight, eh? Uh, that's simple. I'll come and fetch her. Oh. At ten o'clock. Will that do? Certainly, Mr. Laborg, that will do nicely. Yeah, but you must not expect me so early, Edda. You, Tessman, you may stay as long, as long as you like. You, you will be on time, Mr. Laborg. I shall stay till you come. Pray do, Mrs. Elfstead. I shall be here. Uh, come now, gentlemen. Off we go. Have a lively time. I wish I could be there to see it. Oh, you're a nice one, Edda. Fancy your saying such a thing. Come, gentlemen. Goodbye, ladies. Goodbye. Hedda. Hedda, what will come of all this? At ten o'clock he will be here. I can see him already. He'll be flushed and fearless. He'll have vine leaves in his hair. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And then... Don't you see? Then he will have power over himself. He will be a free man for all his days. If only he could come as you see him now. He will come so. So and not otherwise. You, Taya, may doubt him as long as you please. I believe in him. And you forced him to go. Hedda, you have some hidden motive in all this. Yes, I do. I do. I want for once in my life to have power to mold a human destiny. Have you not the power? I have not. I've never had. Not your husband? <laughs> Do you think it's worth the trouble? 
Oh, I'm so poor, Taya, so poor. And fate has made you so rich. I think I must burn your hair off after all. Oh, let go, let go of me. I'm afraid of you, Hedda. Don't be a fool. Come along. We are going to have some tea. No. No, I don't want any. I'd rather go home alone at once. You shall not. You shall have a cup of tea. No. And then at ten o'clock, Islet Loveborg will be here with vine leaves in his hair. Seven in the morning. Broad daylight. Have they come home? No one has come. Hedda, I'm frantic. What are we to do? There, there. Don't be alarmed. I know just what happened. What? What? Tell me. Why, it must have been a very late affair, Judge Brax. They didn't want to come back and wake us, so they've stayed there. But Eilert? Eilert? Why, he's sitting with vine leaves in his hair, reading his manuscript. Oh, Hedda, you don't believe that. You're just saying it. Taya, you're a fool. And how tired you look. You must go into my room and lie down. Oh, I couldn't. Of course you can. But if he comes, I... If anyone comes, I shall call you at once. Now go, will you? I won't look at that tragic face of yours another minute. Berta! Berta! Hedda, remember you promised. If there's any news... I said I'd call you. Now go, go. Did you call, ma'am? Yes, make up a fire in the stove there. It's freezing in this room. Mm, certainly, ma'am. I've made up the fire before, ma'am. I didn't want to come in here for fear of waking you. All right, all right, get on with it. Oh, yes. There was a message came from Miss Julia Tesman, ma'am. She's feeling very ill and she wants Mr. Tesman to come right away. Well, you can see he isn't here. Come, come, am I to freeze to death while you jabber? For heaven's sake, finish building that fire. You needn't try to tiptoe in, Tessman. Good morning. Oh, Hedda. Oh, good heavens, are you up so early, eh? Did you enjoy yourself at Judge Brock's? Oh, yes, in a way. Especially the beginning of the evening. For then, Eilert read me part of his manuscript. Hedda, I must make a confession to you. Well? While he was reading, a horrible feeling came over me. I positively envied him for being able to write such a thing. Fancy that. Is it so fine? Fine! Hedda, it is inspired. I want to think that with all his gifts, he should be irreclaimable after all. What does that mean? I mean, he is incapable of taking his pleasures in moderation. He, he drank far more than was good for him. Had he vine leaves in his hair? I didn't see any vine leaves. Oh, Hedda, a terrible thing happened. I'm almost ashamed to tell you for Eilert's sake. Oh, go on. Well, we left Brox together, a group of us. We meant to take Eilert home. He was walking ahead, and I happened to drop back a little. Yes. You must never speak of it to a soul, Hedda, ever. Fancy, dear. 
Lying in the road, I found this. Well, that's the parcel he had with him yesterday. It is the whole of his precious, irreplaceable manuscript, and he had lost it. Simply dropped it and never knew. Think of it, Hedda. I am thinking. Why didn't you give it back? Why, I dared not. The condition he was in. I didn't even tell him I had it. And afterwards? I had no chance. For he and two or three of the others gave us the slip and disappeared. (laughs) Fancy that. I must take it to him at once, to his lodging. Don't be in a hurry. Give it to me. I want to read it. No. Dearest Hedda, I mustn't do that. Think what a state poor Islet will be in when he finds it gone. He had no copy of it, you know. Oh, by the way, a message came from your Aunt Julia. It seems she is ill. She would like you to come to her. What? Aunt Julia? Hedda, why didn't you tell me? The poor creature I must run to her. Will you run, Tessman? Hedda, dear. If only you would... Don't ask me. I will not look upon sickness. I loathe all sorts of ugliness. Well, well, I must hurry. Yes, run. Pardon, ma'am, but Judge Brock is here. I can't possibly see him. But I can. Ask the judge to come in. Desmond, the manuscript. Yes, yes, give it to me. No, I will keep it. I'll put it here, in the desk drawer. Well, Desmond, are you on the move? Yes, Judge, I must hurry to my aunt. She is ill. Well, don't let me keep you. No, I must hurry. Goodbye, Judge. Hedda, goodbye. Well, Miss Hedda, what has Tesman been telling you about the night's adventures, hmm? Only that they had to take Islet home. Tesman took him home? No, but some of the others, so he said. Oh. Do you know where Islet finished the night, Miss Hedda? Well? Have you ever heard of a Mademoiselle Diana? Mademoiselle Diana? Isn't she a sort of singer? Uh, only in her spare moments. Well, it seems that Islet Loveborg knew her rather well before... Uh... Before he was reclaimed up at the Elvestead. Mm, just so. And this Mademoiselle Diana also had a party last night in her rooms. Uh, that is where Islet ended up. Well, and what happened? Hmm? Seems they came to blows. Islet declared that his pocketbook had disappeared and other things as well. In short, he made a furious disturbance and is now in the hands of the police. You seem to have tracked him out rather carefully. Well, I had my reasons. I thought it was my duty to supply you and Tesman with a full account of Loveborg's exploits. Why? Henceforth, as before, every respectable home will be close to him. And so ought mine to be, you mean? I confess it would be very painful to me if Loveborg were to be made free of your home. It, uh, it might intrude upon the, uh, how shall I say it, uh... Upon the little triangle you have planned... You and Tessman and me. You put it so precisely. You want to be the cock of the walk, don't you, Judge Brock? That's my aim. And for that I will fight with every weapon at my command. You're a dangerous man. I shouldn't like to think you had any hold over me. I should not like that either. The triangle, if possible... Ought to be spontaneously constructed, hmm? Well, I've had my say. Good morning to you, Miss Hedda. I tell you, I will come in. You can't keep me out. Get out of my way. Well, Mr. Loveborg, this is a rather late hour to call for Taya. Hedda, where is Tesman? He's not up yet. Did he tell you anything? About the evening. Oh, I really don't remember. I was so sleepy. Loveborg. Loveborg, is that you? Oh. oh. Oh, I thought I heard your voice. 
At last. Yes, dear, at last. And too late. What? What are you saying? Would you rather be alone? No, Mrs. Desmond, I'll stay here. I have only to tell Taya that... that everything is finished. That our ways must part. How can you stand there and say that? What am I to do with my life? You must go home again, Taya. Never in this world. Where you are, there will I be. I will be with you when the book appears. The book? The book will never appear. Never appear? Loveborg, what have you done with the manuscript? Yes, the manuscript. Loveborg, that was your book and mine. I demand to be told. Where is it? The manuscript I have torn into a thousand pieces. Oh, no. But that's no. not... Not true, you think, huh? Oh, well, of course, if you say so. Hedda, Hedda torn his own work to pieces. Why not? Into a thousand pieces and scattered them in the fjord. And there let them drift and sink. Deeper and deeper. As I shall sink, dear. Love book. This that you have done. To me it is as though you had killed a little child. Oh, how could you, Island? It was my child, too. Yes, Taya. Your child and Islet's. And you wanted that child, didn't you? <gasps> that child. Will never be born now, Taya. Our child. Then everything is over for me. I will go now, Hedda. But Loveborg will see you home. No. No, I will go alone. Goodbye, Hedda. You ever walk through the streets with me? Dare people see her with me? Whatever happened last night, can't it be put right? It won't end with last night. Yet I have no taste for my old sort of life now. She, Taya, changed all that. So, that pretty little fool has had her fingers in a man's destiny. But I let... Why did you tear up the manuscript? Hedda, to you I can tell the truth. I have not torn it up. You still have it? No, no, it is destroyed, utterly destroyed, Edda. Taya said that I... I had killed a child. Yes. But to kill a child... That's not the worst a father can do. Then what is? Suppose, Hedda, suppose a man came home to his child's mother... After a night of riot and debauchery. And said, listen, I have been here and there, this place and that. I have taken our child with me to this place and that. And I've lost the child. It's gone. Devil knows who has it. When all is said and done, after all, this was only a book. Thea's pure soul was in that book. So I understand. Then you can understand that for her and me, no future together is possible. Then what do you mean to do? Only try to make an end of it all. The sooner the better. I let Loveborg. Listen to me. Will you not try to do it beautifully? Beautifully? With vine leaves in my hair, as you used to say in the old days? <laughs> well, I will try. Bye, Mrs. Tessman. Give George Tessman my love. Wait. 
I will give you a memento to take with you. I have no need of anything, Hedda. You may perhaps have this. Do you remember that case there on the table? No. Do you remember it now? Your pistols. Yes. There. That one. It was aimed at you once. Should have used it then. Take it. And use it. Now. This... This is the memento. Beautifully, Eilis Loveborg. Beautifully. Promise me that. Goodbye. Heather Gabler. Better. Better! You called, men. Build up that fire. It's gone out. Build it high. Yes, ma'am. That one who was here, ma'am. We used to hear enough about him in the old days. I hope he won't come back soon. He will never come again. Are you building it high? Yes, ma'am. I think it will do now, ma'am. Then go. I'll call you if I need anything more. And I'll go. Quickly. Now, the manuscript. Their precious manuscript. A child, she called it. She wanted to have a child. Now, Taya. Now I am burning your child, Taya. Burning it. Curly locks. Your child and I love love for. I'm burning... I am burning your child. Hedda? Where is our Loveborg? Has he been here? Did you see him, Tessman? I looked in in his rooms to tell him his manuscript was in safekeeping, and he wasn't there. Then afterwards, I met Mrs. Elstead, and she told me that he had been here this morning. Yes, directly after you had gone. And he said he had torn up the manuscript. Why, he must be out of his mind. I suppose you thought it best not to give it to him, Hedda. No, he did not get it. But of course, you told him we had it. No. Did you tell Mrs. Elstead? No. But you ought to have told him. Let me have it at once, Hedda. I will take it to him. I have not got it. Why, of course you have. Come on, Hedda. Where is it? I have burnt it. You what? I have burnt it. Every line of it. Hedda. Hedda, what are you saying? That's impossible. Every line. Hedda. Hedda, do you know what you have done? What could have made you do such a thing? I did it. I did it for your sake, George. For my sake? This morning. You said when Arlott read you his work, you envied him for it. But of course I didn't mean that. No matter. I couldn't bear for anyone to throw you in the shade. Hedda. Oh, Hedda, is this true? But I never knew you to show your love like this before. Oh, Hedda, my dearest. Well, I've... I may as well tell you this, too, now. You'll know soon enough. Huh? Tell me what? I'm... Well, the fact is, just at this time... When that for which your Aunt Julie is always knitting little things Hedda. for... Oh, my dear... Oh, I understand. Hedda, you mean it? You mean that we... That Don't you... shout, will you? The servant will hear. The servant? 
Why, if you be my dear old Berta, oh, she'll be so happy. I'll tell her myself. Oh, no, it is killing me. It is killing me all this. What is Hedda? Oh, I understand. Come, Hedda, you must lie down. Stop it, will you? Oh, Hedda, I am so happy. And yet, the manuscript. Great heavens, what will become of poor Eilert now? Beg pardon, ma'am, huh? Mrs. Elstead. Oh, Berta. Oh, my old Berta, I have such news for Tessman, you. Tessman, be quiet. I can't bear it, I tell you. Ask Mrs. Elstead to come in. Come in, please, ma'am. Dear Hedda, please forgive my coming here again, but I'm, I'm so afraid something has happened to Eilert. Why, Mrs. Elstead? What makes you say so, eh? I heard them talking at my boarding house. They stopped talking when they saw me. But I heard something about the hospital. Oh, no, surely not. And then I went to his lodgings, and they said he hadn't been there since yesterday afternoon. Nancy, how could they say such a thing? Oh, I'm sure something terrible must have happened to him. Perhaps I should go and make inquiries. Not at all. Don't you mix yourself up in this affair. Mrs. Tesman is quite right about that, Tesman. Oh, is that you, my dear Judge, eh? Judge Brock, have you any news of Violet Lovebrook? What makes you ask, Mrs. Elstead? Have you heard anything? No. No, nothing, but if you know anything, Judge, pray tell us. I regret to say that Eilert Loveborg has been taken to the hospital. He's lying at the point of death. (gasps) So soon. Death! Hedda! Hedda, we parted in anger. Taya, be careful. I must go to him. I must see him before it's too late. That is useless, madam. No one will be admitted. Judge, tell me, is it possible that he himself... Yes. Yes, I'm sure of it. How can you? Unfortunately, you've guessed right, Mrs. Tesman. Oh, Eilert, Eilert. Oh, how horrible. Shot himself. Right again, Mrs. Tesman. Judge, tell us more. Where was he found, eh? Why, uh, that I, I, I don't know. But he was found. He'd shot himself in the breast. Not in the temple? In the breast, Mrs. Tesman. Well, well, the breast is a good place, too. What do you mean, Mrs. Tesman? Nothing, nothing. And he is dying. Has probably died by now. <sighs> At last, a deed worth doing. What heavens, Hedda, what are you saying? I say there is beauty in this. Really, Mrs. Tesman? Oh, Hedda, how can you talk of beauty? I let Loveborg has made up his account with life. He has had the courage to do the one right thing. No. No, I cannot have you think so. He must have been in delirium. Never. Yes, he was in delirium. Just as when he tore up our manuscript. What? The manuscript? Has he torn that up? Who to think of it? Eilert going out of the world this way. Not leaving behind him the book that would have made him immortal. I don't know what I would not give. If only somehow it could be put together again. Perhaps it can, Mr. Tesmartin. Hmm? What do you say, Mrs. Elstead? I have kept all the loose notes he used to dictate from. I have them here with you, me. You have them, Mrs. Elstead? Yes, yes, here well. in my bag. Oh, but they're in such disorder, all mixed oh, up. But if we could make something out of them after all. Well, I can perhaps remember how they should go. <laughs> oh, at least let us try. Oh, we will manage it. We must. I will dedicate my life to it. You, George, you're lying. Well, all I can, at least. My own book must wait in the meantime. Hedda, I owe it to Eilert's memory. Perhaps. Come, Mrs. Astor. We must not brood. I cannot wait until I've looked through these papers. Come. Uh, we will sit uh, in there, in the back parlor. My dear Judge, uh, Hedda, will you excuse us? Oh, Mr. Tessman, if only it were possible, I would try to remember all that I have. Oh, what a sense of freedom it gives one, this act of Violet Lovebox. Release for him, you mean? No. 
for me. To know that a deed of deliberate courage and beauty is still possible in this world. Hmm. I let love, Borg, was more to you than you admit even to yourself. Am I wrong? I do not answer such questions. I'm thinking only that he had the will, the courage, the strength I'm to do I'm sorry, what... Miss Hedda. I must dispel a pretty illusion. Illusion? What are you talking about? Eilert Loveborg did not shoot himself voluntarily. For Mrs. Elfstead's sake, I concealed the fact somewhat. Well, what are the facts? First, that he's already dead. At the hospital? Yes. Second, that he was found shot in Mademoiselle Diana's boudoir. <laughs> that is impossible, Judge Brock. He cannot have been there. Oh, he was there this afternoon. The police were told that he came to demand the return of something he said had been stolen from him. He talked wildly about a lost child. Oh. Well, there he was found with a pistol in his breast pocket discharged. The bullet had lodged in a vital part. In the breast? Yes. No, in the stomach. Oh. What curse is it that makes everything I touch turn ugly and mean? And then there is one more thing, Miss Oh, my dear... It is almost impossible for Mrs. Elstead and me to see under that lamp. Would you mind our sitting at your writing desk? If you like. Oh, come then, Mrs. Elstead. Make yourself comfortable here. Yeah. Well, my sweet Taya, how goes it with Eilert Loveborg's manuscript? Oh, it will be terribly hard to put in order. Yes, yes, but we must manage it. I am determined. Heather, dear, don't let us disturb your conversation with Judge Brock. Perhaps if we could start with this group, Mr. Tessman. Yes, yes, and then I would try to get some notes. Yes, Judge Brock, you were saying there was one more point. Yes, about the pistol Loveborg was carrying, Miss Haddon. What about it? He was here this morning, was he not? Yes. Were you alone with him? Part of the time. Did you not leave the room while he was here? Perhaps part of the time. I may have stepped into the hall. And after he left, did you by chance open your pistol case to see if both the pistols were there? No. Hmm. Well, you needn't. The pistol in Loveborg's pocket was the one I saw here yesterday. Where is it? The police have it. What will the police do with it? Why, search until they find the owner. Do you think they will succeed? No, Hedda Gabler. Not as long as I say nothing. And if you say something, what then? Well, there is the possibility, of course, that the pistol was stolen. And if it was not, and if the owner is discovered? Oh, well, Hedda, then comes the scandal. The scandal? Yes, the scandal, of which you're mortally afraid. You will, of course, be brought before the court, both you and Mademoiselle Diana. She'll have to explain how it all happened whether it was an accident or murder. Did the pistol go off as he was taking it from his pocket to threaten her, or did she tear it from his pocket, shoot him and replace it? She could do that. She's an able-bodied young person, this same Mademoiselle Diana. I... I have nothing to do with this repulsive affair. No? But you will have to explain why you gave Eilert Loveborg the pistol. And what are people likely to think from the fact that you did give it to him? That is true. I did not think of that. Well, my dear, fortunately, there's no danger. As long as I say nothing. So, I am in your power, Judge Brock. <laughs> At your beck and call, as long as I live. 
Dearest Hedda, believe me, I shall never abuse my advantage. Nevertheless, I am your slave. No. I am not. I will not be. People generally get used to the inevitable. Perhaps. Well, are you getting on, George? Huh? It is hard to say, my dear. Perhaps. In any case, it will be the work of months. Fancy that. Doesn't it seem strange to you, Taya? Here you are sitting with Tessman, just as you used to sit with Islet Loveborg. Oh, Hedda, if only I could inspire your husband to, to be wonderful in the same way. Oh, that will come, too, in time. Yes. Do you know, Hedda, I really think I begin to feel something of the sort. How brightly your hair shines, Taya, under the light. Uh, Hedda, my dear, uh, won't you go and sit with Brock again? Is there... Is there nothing I can do to help you No, oh, nothing in the world, dear. I trust you to keep Hedda company, my dear Brock. With the very greatest of pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. But I'm tired this evening. I think I shall go into the back parlor and lie down on the sofa. Yes. Yes, do, dear. Why don't you draw the curtains across the doorway and put out the lamp in there? Then you can rest. Yes. Yes, I think I shall rest. All this has been too much for Hedda. She does look tired, poor dear. Yes, just now. In her condition. Oh, what is that? Hedda! Hedda, my dear! My dear, you mustn't play tonight. Think of poor Eilert. Yes, I am thinking of him. After this, I will be quiet. It's not good for her to see us at this distressing work. I'll tell you what, Mrs. Elstead. You shall take the empty room at Aunt Julia's, and then I will come over in the evenings and we can work there, eh? How wonderful. I hear what you're saying, Tessman. How am I to get through the evenings here? Why, Hedda, uh, I dare say Judge Brock will be so kind as to look in now and again. Every blessed evening with the greatest pleasure in life, Mrs. Tessman. We shall get on capitally together, we two. Yes. Don't you flatter yourself we will, Judge Brock. Now that you are the one cock of the walk. Oh, heaven. Oh, now she's playing with those pistols again. Head up. Head up. Head up. Good Lord. She shot herself. Shot herself. Shot herself in the temple. Fancy that. Good Lord. Why? People don't do such things. You have heard Hedda Gabler by Henrik Ibsen, as adapted for radio by Clarice A. Ross. Be with us at the NBC Theater next week for a dramatic presentation of the Anatole France novel, The Crime of Sylvester Bonnard. And the following week for Lost Horizon by James Hilton. Commencing next month, the NBC Theater will resume its participation in college-supervised courses in world literature. If you wish to increase your knowledge and appreciation of the great novels and novelists, we suggest that you write for full information on these correspondence courses. Write to the NBC Theater, 
in care of one of the following universities or colleges. The University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. The University of Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. Texas College of Arts and Industries, Kingsville, Texas. And Brooklyn College, Brooklyn, New York. In today's cast, Virginia Christine was Hedda, John Stevenson was Tessman, Florence Ravenel was his aunt, Gloria Ann Simpson was Berta the maid, Vivi Janus was Taya, Paul Fries was Judge Brock, Larry Dobkin was Loveborg. Your announcer, Don Stanley. The NBC Theater is produced by Wade Arnold. The director of the NBC Theater is Andrew C. Love. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Henrik Ibsen's classic tragedy, Hedda Gobbler, from the NBC University Theater in the summer of 1950. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. Earlier tonight, we marked the centennial of the guitar virtuoso Doc Watson, Early on, he played electric guitar in a jazz band before switching exclusively to acoustic folk music. Well, there's another virtuoso who stuck to electric guitar, and we're glad he did. He was born three days after Doc Watson in Indianapolis, Indiana, so his 100th birthday would have been tomorrow, March 6th. In his all-too-brief 45 years, he made his mark as one of the greatest jazz guitarists of all time. We're going to hear him with two fellow Indianapolis musicians, the understated organist Melvin Rhine and the drummer Paul Parker. Recorded in New York for Riverside Records on October 6, 1959, it's the great Wes Montgomery with Jerome Kern and Otto Harbach's song, Yesterday's. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Kennedy Wright, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.
Thank you.